Hello there, and welcome to We Have Such Films to Show You. Uh, I'm Josh Millard. Uh, with me is Yakov Grinberger. Hey, party people. I sort of stumbled on it a little bit there. It almost sounded like Grinberger. Like, yeah. a, like a sequel to Good Burger or something. Which we should totally oh, yeah. review for this, this yeah, podcast sometime. I, uh, Tumblr is very fond of that movie. Have you noticed that? I, it does seem to be like a thing. It's uh, yeah. yeah. It's out there. It's in the it's in the the Tumblr zeitgeist. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I remember it from you know, I remember the sketches on all that, but I've never actually seen the movie, and now I'm wondering if there's anything uh, redeeming about it. I don't know. Maybe we just let's, in, let's just make this entire episode just our speculation on what the Good Burger movie could be. <laughs> See, I've never seen any of it. I've only ever seen like you know references to it. So uh, th- th- it could be quite a ride if we tried to pull that off. <laughs> Uh, what we're actually talking about this episode is uh, John Dies at the End, uh, sort of a, a bookend film to our episode a couple ago about Phantasm, because this is the recent film by uh, director Don Coscarelli, also written by him, also starring at least one of the people, well... It's, it's, it's adapted for the screen by him. Um, it's based on a novel. Oh, okay. Yeah, there was uh, the David Wong, which is the the pen name of one of the writers from uh, Crack dot com. Which okay, I have to like go through this every time I bring up Crack dot com <laughs> to anybody, but it has l- almost literally nothing to do with like the Mad Magazine knockoff, except for just basically some media company bought the the bought you know just the rights to the magazine and all that stuff. And then they just made um, a website for just humor, and then eventually it transformed into what we now know as just like the cracked website. Just two totally different things, the, the website and the magazine. Um, and David Wong was, was the guy who ran, uh, remember uh, Pointless Waste of Time back in the day? Yeah. Yeah, that's him. Um, and so he had this serialized story, which eventually became the novel um, John Dies at the End, which uh, Coscarelli, um, at some point, he was... I mean, the, the story that I read was that he was just, like, you know, browsing Amazon for horror novels, and he had ordered some, and they brought up this book, and he was just like, oh, damn, this would make a great movie. And so he just bought the rights to it, adapted it for the screen, and made the movie. Well, that would do it. With all his, you know, like, massive phantasm money, I guess? <laughs> uh, I, well, I and, I mean, let's... Uh, let, we were just talking about this uh, before we managed to hit record because I couldn't get my computer to actually let me hit the record button because computers are awesome. Uh, we were talking... Coscarelli's got this uh, filmography that's not very big, and it's really... You know, the, the, the couple, whatever they were, he made before Phantasm, uh, Kenny and Company, and Jim, the world's greatest... I'm not sure world's greatest what. But then he makes Phantasm. Uh, then he makes three more of them. Yeah, he makes some makes three more. Also, yeah, he, uh, he also writes Beastmaster, um, and uh, directs it too. I think yeah. So he wrote and directed Beastmaster. Uh, apparently, the later Beastmasters two and and three or or two and the Eye of Braxis were uh, were not involving him so much. Um, but yeah, and, and something terrible called Survivor Quest that I remember seeing a trailer for on the disc that I uh, rented uh, Phantasm of uh, that just looked it looked real bad and had Lance Henriksen in it, so maybe maybe we'll watch it at some <laughs> point. Somebody needed another boat. Uh, and, and and yeah, and then and then that's it except for uh, Boba Hotep he made in 2002, which I had no idea that was him. I, well, I had no idea who he was before we watched Phantasm. Uh, and I really liked Bubba Hotep. I, I thought it was like a sort of weird, uneven oddity of a film, but that kind of totally makes sense coming from this guy. And I love Bruce Campbell and, 
I, I'm at least fond of the idea of Elvis, you know, switching places with someone and not actually being dead. So, uh, but yeah, so like, yeah, he made Phantasm. He made some eh, in between. He made Bubba Hotep 10 years ago, and then he makes John dies at the end. Yep. And yeah, I mean, this is, this seems like a, like a pet project for him. I mean, I guess he's comfortable because it, it, I mean, you know, you'd think he would have made some movies in the meanwhile. If it, from everything it sounds, it sounds like he wanted to make this specifically because of what because of the novel. So, I guess yeah, maybe he's just you know, oh maybe all that uh phantasm licensing. I mean, there's that phantasm ride in Disneyland. There's uh the phantasm soda. <laughs> I, I, I get all that licensing really paid yeah, off. You phantasm know? flakes. I every morning uh, there's boy brand barbecue sauce. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and the tall man the tall man is in this film uh yes Angus as, Shrimp. As, as the priest i didn't reckon like i he seemed familiar during the scene but i couldn't place it and it wasn't until afterwards that uh my wife pointed out that oh no yeah it looks like that was oh okay so and i, I guess that guy's been old for like the last 30 40 years <laughs> yeah he was born old he's like a benjamin button except for the, without the getting young part <laughs> yeah so um yeah. Oh, you know what? Uh, just some business-y stuff before we uh, get into the podcast. Um, what I would... Oh, yeah. Somebody on uh, the Facebook group was wondering what the uh, intro and outro music is. It is... Uh, <laughs> yes, please answer and, correctly, because I... <laughs> yeah, I just started lying to people. It's like, oh, yeah, no, it's totally this other band that it's not. Yeah, it's Coil. No, it's... Um, it's a track called uh, Giza by Gatekeeper. Was it... No, you we use Chains. I yeah, think we were I think, originally going to use Giza, and then we used Chains. So it's Chains by Gatekeeper off of their EP, Giza. I, li- I like that even if someone had really done their homework and tracked down like the original episode or two and notes in there, they probably still would have been misinformed because we screwed it up when we first explained that 15 <laughs> episodes ago. We uh, Fuck you, future historians. We're going to make it hard on you. Uh it's uh, it's Ramblin' Man by the Almond Brothers Band. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. So, oh, also, I got married. Yeah, so yeah. I guess we should talk about that. Out, I was so. going to talk more about Benjamin Button, but I guess we could we could mention that. So, uh, yeah, congratulations with the whole being. Uh, now you're you're a, you're an honest man now. Thank you, thank you. Yes, the the the, the dog is no longer living in sin, or yep. however that works. Um. And you know what? It's actually a, I, I don't know how much of a coincidence it is, but the reason I know about this movie is because of the guy who is now my brother-in-law. Um, my wife and I were uh, visiting some relatives last Christmas, and I remember right before leaving to go to some restaurant or something, he was watching something on his laptop, and just like, oh, what is that? It looks interesting. It was a trailer for uh, John Dies at the End, and it was like the uh, the meat scene. Um, and I was just, <laughs> damn, that looks really cool. And what actually really what really brought it to my attention was the fact that it was, uh, it was stop motion. It wasn't CGI. Yeah. I'm like, Oh shit, <laughs> they're still doing that. Cause I, I mean, I love practical effects. And, I, um, so, and then one day I was just like in the city, I think I was getting a haircut or grabbing lunch with somebody. It was just like, if I go home, I'm going to do nothing. And then it turned out this movie was playing at, uh, one of the theaters around there. So I went to go see it. I'm like, Oh wow, this is actually a really enjoyable movie. And then I told you about, it, and I think that's how you found out about it. Is that, was that? is that how is it? I don't remember. I Maybe so. it is. I mean, I, I I know I watched it at some point. 
Yeah, because I think when we did just like a couple of months into this podcast, I'd be like, oh, dude, this movie's great. And you're like, oh, is it? And I think it turned up on Netflix ah. shortly thereafter. That would, um, that would do it. Yeah, I'd, I'd forgotten about that. I, I at, at this point, anything that's a movie that I saw that I don't remember how I ended up seeing it, it's just, oh, I must have seen it while browsing Netflix. But, uh, you know yeah. what? That's actually pretty funny. I was telling somebody the other day about going to see uh, Pacific Rim, and I keep spending all of this money to go see movies in 3D, and then I'm just like, I don't remember if I saw that movie in 3D. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't know. I don't know if that's a testament to uh, the, the the subtle, tasteful use of the effect uh, by directors, such that you don't even remember that you did. You just re, you know have a sense of having seen the film, or if it just yeah speaks. To I mean, of all the effects the to have like subtle, tasteful uses, I don't think 3D in a movie about robots punching monsters should be one of them. Well, but at the same time, it's funny because like why yeah. like, like people they, okay so. He, Let's talk about uh, perception and, and memory versus, you know, what's actually on the screen per se. Uh, lots of people classically, you know, there's a classic story about how if you ask, you know, people about uh, Psycho, uh, the shower scene film where uh, Norman's uh, murdering her uh, and people, you know, attest to remembering, oh, yeah, and there's this red blood going down the drain, but it's a black and white film. And the thing is, I mean, there's nothing weird about sort of remembering in your mind that blood is red. But at the same time, uh, it is a little bit weird that people's memories of that scene is, you know, partly sort of reconstructed based on their expectations. So if you are mostly accustomed to color film at this point, you might see a black and white film and then, you know, sort of store the image. You aren't storing the image necessarily as black and white in your mind. That's not really so much how our memory works when we're not specifically worrying about little visual details or whatever. Uh, so you right. sort of remember that. So so if you go and see a film in 3D and the 3D is not obnoxious or or I guess on the, you know, more positive spin of it, if the 3D is not fundamentally, you know, world changing in what it does with the film, then you might not remember that it was 3D because whatever, you, you saw the film, you experienced the film, you store the memory of the things that happened more than you, like, like, like the old super gimmicky shitty 3D, like, when 3D was like, you know, doing the red and blue 3D and, you know, the movie probably looked kind of like shit because you're stuck watching yeah. red and blue glasses, etc. cetera. Uh, so the, the big thing with the 3D is you might as well make it worthwhile if it's going to be that ugly. And so you, you kind of have to have the screen gimmicks. You kind of have to the, oh, my God, it's coming right at me thing. Freddy Krueger swiping his claw, you know, 20 feet tall across the screen in, you know, 3D. Uh, but that's the same thing that, like, at this point, someone's like, if if all you do with the 3D in your film or or if the main thing you do with the 3D in your film in a modern 3D film is have, you know, the giant claw sweep out of the screen and people are just going to be like, oh, come on, this is fucking gimmicky, right? So, like, there's this desire, I'm guessing, on the part of directors to use it in a way that seems more, art, like, it has a little bit of artistic integrity, which is maybe a funny word to use for uh, blockbuster 3D films, but still, like, <laughs> the idea that you're using the 3D to create a sense of size and space and, and depth rather than use it to make people say, oh my gosh, it's coming out of the screen, you know? Uh, I, I feel like if someone's using it well in that sense, in a non-gimmicky fashion, yeah, it's it could, in a sense, be forgettable. I mean, even if it works very well, even if the giant robots, even if you come up with a much more impressive sense of the giantness of these robots, you still, at a surface level, were sort of like, oh yeah, they were there were these giant robots fighting, not, oh, these giant robots were rendered in a convincing use of 3D that really lent me a lasting sense of the depth of that composition of that shot with the punch in the face. So, I don't know. Does that make sense? Am I, am I just, yeah, yeah, just no, rambling? Yeah, yeah. You bo- it's, it could be both. It could be both. <laughs> <laughs> 
Uh, oh yeah, so Benjamin Button, I did want to say though, uh, it kind of bothers me that the kid wasn't born as a full-size old man. Because like at the end of the movie, he's shrinking down, like he's aging backwards into you know pre-adolescence, and he's like you know uh, a, a, a six-year-old boy, and he looks like a six-year-old boy. So if he's going to properly shrink down, you know, regress physically to. Uh, you know, appropriate sizes of, you know, right. childhood and toddlerdom and so on. Uh, shouldn't he have come out as a fully formed old man, not as a Yeah, there's something like baby? a bell curve to the actual physical growth. Yeah. Um, although, honestly, the only thing I remember about that movie was just literally the worst date movie I had ever picked in my life. <laughs> my God. Was no, no. I mean, no, Life is Beautiful is the worst date movie oh, I've ever that's, picked. That's, this is the second worst. Yeah. What movie is this episode about? John <laughs> dies at the end. Yes. Um, so this is this movie. This is a, this is an episode about uh, Holocaust funnies by legendary director John Dysthend. Um, <laughs> Was that a sequel to the uh, the day the clown dies? Yes. Yes. Uh, <laughs> this time Jerry Lewis is back as the villain. <laughs> This is like the third time we're referencing that movie on this podcast, I think. Yeah, well, did we... Uh, there was like a little bit of test footage out there somewhere. Uh, yeah. That, that got up. Maybe we talked about that previously. Anyway, I... I, I, I uh, yeah. So, John dies at the end. Uh, yes. Uh, so, directed <laughs> by Don Coscarelli and uh, starring Tobey Maguire's stunt double. Yeah, And the weird. son of Dean Kane and uh, Jerry O'Connell. Their, their child is in this, who plays John. It's not their child. It looks like them. Yeah, no. It's, doesn't, that, doesn't that dude look like Dean Cain and Jerry O'Connell? Like, you know, and it's, it, but it's funny. He sort of he sort of vibed to me as much as anything. Sort of like a like early comedy era. Um, oh, fucking what's his face? Val Kilmer. Like there's yeah, a little yeah. bit of like uh, like like top secret era. Val yeah, Kilmer I mean, to his he, mugging like his his yeah his uh, his whole thing is just like straight out of like a uh, 80s sort of romp movie where he's like the fun loving guy and um I th- I think that actually works cuz that's clearly the sort of thing that Coscarelli knows how to work with um and I I I enjoyed his performance yeah, as, no, I, as I, John I, Cheese I, I thought in in general the acting in this uh-huh. uh was pretty much fine throughout I I thought it was a uh... You know, it's, it's certainly in comparison to Phantasm. And, and honestly, yeah. that's... I, I liked this movie. It was a fun movie. Uh, I actually had a little bit of a bad attitude going back into it because I had a slightly bad attitude coming out of it the first time I remember. And I feel better about uh, the things that were sort of annoying me. And, and I'll talk about that more. But uh, but all in all, I, I enjoyed it. It was fine. It was a fun movie. Uh, but I really couldn't stop watching it through the lens of Phantasm. Like, that's kind of how I watched the whole movie the second time. Because I hadn't seen Phantasm the first time I saw right. it. It was just some yeah. movie by some guy. And boy, it's it's really interesting to sort of like the things that you know change and the things that stay the same. Uh, yeah, I mean, like I had seen it maybe th- possibly three, maybe even four times before watching Phantasm. So this was maybe my fourth or fifth time seeing it since it came out this summer. Um, 
not because I love it so much, but because I just kept wanting to show it to people because I wanted them <laughs> to see it. And I'm just like, well, you know, now I, you know, here, let's watch this movie. Bye. So, you know, I can't really do that. See, I wasn't that taken with it. I, I, I mean, again, I, I liked it. It was, it, it was fun. I think it was, it, it was less that, that, that it was just like this mind blowing movie and more that I just know so many people that would just enjoy the kind of movie that this is, regardless of the actual, you know, just how, and I mean, it's, it falls apart to it. Like basically like any movie where the ideas are, are better than the conception of it. It falls apart in the third act. Um, but you know, it's 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 one of those things where it's, it's, it's you know it's it's not that bad because you had a really fun time during the first two acts, and it's sort of you know I I what I read a couple of reviews of it and they compared it to uh, Big Trouble in Little China, which is another <laughs> one of those movies where just like don't expect cohesiveness or cogency, and don't don't expect like you know like a nicely wrapped up plot with the loose ends tied up. No, it's it's just not even it's not that kind of movie. It's it's it wasn't nobody went into this movie with the intention to make that kind of movie it was it was made for 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 fun and you know for for enjoying it rather than you know to tell a really you know tightly structured yeah. story yeah i i think i think this yeah i would say the problem with the film is the third act is kind of a big twist third act sort of thing but it really feels more like the third act should have been the second act yeah. Or, or, or the second act should have set up the third act by you know exploring some of that uh, other world territory more thoroughly. And I, I, I don't know how that would have worked. It would have been a different film. They would have had to change the way it opened up a whole lot to get there. But uh, yeah, it really felt like it felt like one and a half the, plots. Yes. One of the issues that I think is, and I'm not 100% on this because I only read a little bit, but I believe the book is episodic. I know it was definitely written as episodic, and I think the book is episodic in the sense that it's just like a couple of different stories just involving Dave and John, and I'm not sure if there's an overarching narrative in it, and then they had to adapt that to a movie that does have an overarching narrative, so um, I'm not sure if they just like took parts of each story or, you know... um, you know, stretched it out. So yeah, there's it's there's something lost in translation there that that keeps the movie from being you know totally totally cohesive. Yeah, I I, I could see that being an issue. And yeah, it's interesting because it really, I mean, the the story they set up lends itself to an episodic thing. It's the sort of thing where like this really could, in theory, be a TV show. You know, and, and right. essentially the first two acts of the film would be the pilot, and then the third right. act would be an episode, but the episode would be a little bit more in depth than what we actually got. Cause they'd actually be able to, you know, arc it out over the period of an hour. Um, you know what? I, I'm, I'm, I'm a little, if it's not that I would want this movie to be, have made in the early nineties. Cause I think it wouldn't have been as good in the sense, like there's a sensibility about this movie that, that, you know, you just didn't have in horror movies in the early nineties, but what you did have in horror movies in the early nineties was the anthology film, which you don't have anymore. They were really, really popular, um, like in the late 80s, early 90s. You know, there was the Twilight Zone movie. There was, um, you know, the Amazing Stories movies. There was, uh, what was it, Tales from the Hood, which was like the... (laughs) the, uh, Yeah, um, and then, yeah, so I I think this would have been better as as an anthology film, but I I don't think you could make an anthology film like that anymore. Well, it's funny, because, you know, there's been, like, a little bit of creeping back of anthology... Uh, horror in terms of like a, a film that's a collection of short I, I don't know that anybody's really gotten into doing uh, sort of episodic you know multi-release anthologies but there's been stuff like VHS uh, I haven't uh, seen that one oh we should do that 
And VHS yeah. 2 is out now, too. And, God, I'm so angry they changed the name to VHS 2. The original planned release name for the sequel was SVHS, which was fantastic. <laughs> and then they fucking changed Great. it. But uh, VHS 2 no, is out on Netflix it. now, too, and I, I haven't watched it yet. But, no, yeah, we should... Maybe maybe that's what we'll do, actually, uh, after uh, we do Prophecy 4 and 5 next time. I keep getting VHS confused with Rec, which is the Spanish one, because I know one of them is like a Spanish film, uh, like made in Spain. Rec, Rec must be the Spanish one. Okay. Because uh, VHS is definitely American. Uh, oh, man, and I just watched the ABCs of Death. It's another little uh, yeah, international... Yeah, that's, like, that's the 26 yeah. different... It's kind of uh, great. Uh, man, it, it could be tricky to do a, an episode about an anthology horror film like that, because like, with, with ABCs, it's like, let's talk about 26 films. I don't know. Uh, but maybe maybe we'll dig into that anyway uh where the hell were we going with this uh yes yeah, so the structure of the film is definitely it, it is weird and it's i i would have liked to see more of the the alternate universe in the third act uh and explore that a little I, bit more i did not in yeah i mean well, okay i i, I, I would have liked to have seen more of a more interesting treatment of that like there wasn't a whole yeah. lot there that was like yeah. oh i have so many entered questions it did feel pretty kind of slight but i like the idea of exploring more of how that world was different from our own based on right. the divergence over time um, there's um there's like a bunch of i want to say costco touches in this movie where shit just happens for no reason and everybody goes along with it and th- it's, it's the kind of movie that like absolutely needs that <laughs> um everybody just stopped and, and, and said really let's think this through yeah, yeah, no, that 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 doesn't happen. It's just like it's the same way in Phantasm, where it's just like, all right, well, all of this weird shit is happening. Let's just deal with it. Let that, nobody needs to think this through. And and this movie is just that's what carries the plot along in this movie. Is is just you know, a, a thing happens, and it's like, well, now we got to deal with the thing. Um, you know, the one of like the main main uh, plot points in this, which is when Dave uh, gets there's so there's a drug in this movie called uh, soy sauce, and it's like this black living substance from another planet. Or eh, they don't make it too clear. They don't try to make it too clear. But at one point, um, Dave is uh, in. He's not infected with it. Basically, he's got a syringe in his pocket from when he has to rescue. He goes to John's house, and John's tripping his balls off on this stuff. He puts the syringe he finds in his pocket, and then it pokes him, and that's how he gets the dose of the soy sauce. And there is no reason for that to have happened at all. It, it makes no sense, yeah, no, but it, it's, it happens. It's a completely and, and, arbitrary yeah. thing. That, and yeah, as I, like, I remember noticing it the first time, you're like, what? And the, the second time, and you could make the argument that, okay, the soy sauce is actually some sort of living entity, and so maybe it could actually uh, maneuver the the situation with the syringe enough to get the cap off and then jump into his leg. You know, it's you can sort of hand wave it based on the weird motility of the stuff that we see yeah. uh a couple points in the film, but yeah, at the same time, it's still so totally bizarre. It just happens. Yep. And, uh, I wanted to say, you know, there's, there's a couple, there, there's a lot of things that make me think of phantasm in this film, but there's also a number of things that make me think of, of Bill and Ted's excellent adventure. Yes. Um, there's, uh, the big one being, there's a lot of temporal hijinks in the film. We get a lot of, uh, what is at least in, like, like there's some explicit, Oh, Hey, I'm calling you from a different time than I was calling you five minutes ago when I was calling you and you're not on the same time wavelength as me, but, uh, you know, just run with it and follow my instructions sort of thing. Uh, but there's also some implied stuff there too. And this is a, 
there's a couple moments in the film where it feels like the implication is there's supposed to be a, okay, I'm going to try and pull off this, uh, you know, time traveling trick by doing this thing at a different time than your subjective experience of time. And then it will have happened. Um, but most of them are kind of left as just, you can sort of read that into it, but they don't say anything about it. Like at one point, uh, uh, Dave, our, our our perspective character, is uh, in the middle of a complicated situation, and he's sort of walking away from the police station, and he buys a bratwurst uh, that he then uses as a telephone because his friend John is trying to uh, prove a point about how he's being communicated with not so much through an actual telephone, but through some weird you know, complicated, uh, mystical thing that's going on. So whatever, they're on the same wavelength because they're, they're on the soy sauce. Uh, but so he's, he's got this bratwurst and, and John's like, okay, now go do this thing that takes some money, you know, go buy this thing. Or I don't even remember what it was. It was like, take a cab somewhere or something yeah. like that. And, uh, and, and, and he's like, uh, I don't have any money. I just spent like three of my $5 on that fucking bratwurst. And, uh, John says, oh, okay, hold on a second. Uh, look in the bratwurst. There should be a hundred dollar bill in there. And he looks in the bratwurst, and there is no hundred dollar bill in there. <laughs> and the implication to me is that John then found some way to, like, you know, did the sort of mental note to self. And this is what brings me back to the the Bill and Ted thing is like the implication that John, wherever he was, whenever he was during this phone call, was like, okay, I need to make sure I get a hundred dollar bill tucked in that bun under that bratwurst so that Dave will find it. Uh, but then it didn't work. And the implication to me is that John did find a hundred dollar bill, did go tuck it into what he thought was the right hot dog, but didn't. And then someone else found a hundred dollar bill in a hot dog bun somewhere. Um, or on the flip side that John was like, Oh, I got to make a note to myself to do this and then completely forgotten. So just never did it. Uh, but either way, it's like, it's, it's like a little cute time travel note yeah. from Bill and Ted, except for without ever, pinning down what the hell happened with it. It's just sort of left there as a, okay. Yeah. And then there's the, uh, the entire thing with like the, uh, the, the, the FedEx package where it was, it was, um, that, uh, that there's, uh, basically like earlier in the movie, um, when, uh, Dave is just hanging around John's house while John is flipping out. He sees this, uh, shipping label. It's just like a FedEx shipping label or UPS shipping label or whatever. And then, uh, later, and I think it's either at the end of the second act or the beginning of the third act where they're hanging around the mall, the, uh, the mall of the dead. Yes. Um, you know, the, the antagonist shitload, he, he, there, it turns out that there's a package that John sent to himself at the mall before shitload basically told them all to like get to the mall to, you know, do some mystical shit. And, um, you know, so he's kicking around this package and, um, you know, the, the, it's, so it's, you know, like the four protagonists and like the antagonist and John tries to get to the package before uh, Shitload does. And he, he, you know, he doesn't, Shitload gets to him before it. He opens up the package and there's just a note in there that says, John, check out, uh, you know, it's like, go outside and it's, it's in the, uh, it's in the dumpsters by the, by the uh, main entrance or something like that. Yeah. And Shitload's just like, what's in there? A weapon? And then he goes out there and he's rifling through the garbage can and there's nothing in there, but uh, Appleton, the, uh, the cop, he's there and kills Shitload, which was just, you know, another one of those little temporal tricks. That, yeah. Which I don't you know, exactly it, understand how that works. Did, did John also deliver a package to the cop? Or, or uh, yeah, to, to the cop suggesting that he come to the mall at that point. I think I guess. John knew that 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 shitload was headed 
the, I think John knew that Appleton was headed there. Yeah. Because uh, Appleton was, was definitely, you know, he was plugged into something because he knew what was going on in, yeah. in, in a certain way. Should we, you know, let's, <laughs> there's probably people that, I mean, we've been talking about this for a half hour now. If you haven't seen it, um, the well, movie is on Netflix. we 15 minutes talking about like Benjamin Button and, yeah. and uh, yeah, but. Uh, <laughs> so let's, let's, you, let's just introduce the characters at least. I guess, yeah. Um, it's not a, it's not a big cast, so. Yeah, yeah it's no, so there's, uh, there's, there's Dave and John. Um, Dave is basically just like your standard sort of sarcastic, skeptical, uh, slacker guy. He, he's, he's smart and he's got sort of, uh, he's got that sort of edge that you see in fantasy that like his that, that Cosgrave's characters have to do where when shit gets down you know when, when they have to get down to stuff you know they'll pull the gun and they'll make the shot he's he's that kind of guy um, John he's more of a he's you know kind of like the, he's the fun loving guy but he's also you know he he's the one that gets them into the misadventures he's the one that's you know doing the weird drugs cuz somebody offers it to him um, and and you know they they're, they're best friends and they get into trouble together um there's uh, who else is there? There's um, Blondstone, Arnie Blondstone, who's uh, the the framing device of this movie is that Blondstone is interviewing uh, Dave about his experiences because Dave wants to get the story out. So the you know the framing device is that they're sitting in this Chinese restaurant and Blondstone is interviewing Dave, um, and Dave is repeatedly proving to be an unreliable narrator. So who even knows how much of the movie actually <laughs> takes place? And then it becomes a really unreliably narrating thing because of what happens to Blondstone at the end, which, I mean, should we just talk about that right now? Uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's not like anybody's listening to the end of this podcast for the spoilers. It's, yeah. So what, what, what it turns out is that Blondstone, who meets Dave in the diner to talk about his experiences, doesn't exist. It's a, the character by Paul Giamatti. What happens is at one point, um, all the way at the end of the movie, they're they're talking about each other, and Dave's like, you know, here I brought you a sample of the soy sauce. Let's get it to a lab. You know, that'll be the only way people can prove it. But listen, your career is going to be over. This is all that people are going to remember you for. And Paul Giamatti, if you uh, you might know him from uh, what Sideways, shoot him up. He's just a little he play, short he played, Italian. He's the guy who played Harvey Pekar yeah. in uh, American Splendor. Yeah. There you go. So he's talking about he's just like his first year out of journalism school. He's covering uh, some riots. I don't remember what it is. And he's just like he's talking about how how bad he's had it since he got out of journalism school. And he's talking about it's like, you know, he gets knocked. It's like I got knocked down and I wake up and there's this fat cop standing over me saying, stay down, nigger. And Dave's like, what? Why? Why would why, <laughs> why would somebody would call that? you the N word? And and then Arnie Blondstone freaks out because he's just like because of all this weird shit. You know, Dave's been like. Uh, Dave has been able to tell him how much change he has in his pockets in the years and the coins, dreams he's had. You know, he's convinced at this point. He showed him this monster um, that he's got that you can only see out of the corner of your eye, which I thought was a really neat touch. Um, and then it turns out that the real Arnie Blonstone is this old black guy who died long before he even got to Dave because, you know, somebody doesn't want Dave to get a story out. You know, there's mis- all sorts of mysterious forces the movie doesn't even begin to cover. Um, and the Arnie Blonstone he's been talking to was actually just a projection of him empowered by the soy sauce. And then, you know, uh, Blonstone just sort of breaks down in his car. He's just like, it's, I can't, you know, I can't be here just because you brought me out of your imagination. And then and poof, he's right gone. after he says that, yeah, he just pops into nothingness. And Dave's like, ah, shit, sorry. Um, so I thought that was a pretty neat touch. And so, yeah, it's just sort of like the, the entire framing device turns out to be, 
just unreliable narration. Yeah, it's just yeah. It, 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 it's unreliable narration, masturbation, essentially. And he doesn't mm-hmm. even realize it until the end of the film that he's just been literally talking to himself this whole time. Uh, and it's actually pretty funny because he also is talking to himself during the framing device because every you know every scene where they go back to the restaurant and he's talking to Arnie he'll say something and then there's a pause and, and then he'll sort of think, think something, something. yeah and so it'll be contrary to what he said and so he's having this conversation with himself in one way through Arnie Blonso and he's also having his conversation with another way with just his internal thoughts versus what he's saying and it's so it's, it's, it's one of those things that's interesting to the the second time you watch it and you know it's going on with Arnie, you know, watching it and looking for uh, the details and the uh, and the tells and, and the misdirections that the film might throw out. Um, and I, I didn't make it like I, none, none of it blew my mind. None of it was like, oh, my God, it makes so right, much yeah, more sense now. But there's there's some nice little touches in there. It's like it's um, one of those things where it's like, oh, that's 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 clever. That's, you know, yeah, it's yeah. Um, although one of the, know, f- I think the, the cut that I saw in the theater was different than the cut that's on Netflix right now. There's a single line that's not there. Yeah. Um, the intro to this movie, again, if you haven't, I, I, why are you listening to this? If you haven't seen it, turn off the podcast, go watch it. It's an hour and a half long. Um, but the, the opening to this movie is wonderful. It's just like a retelling of the, uh, the grandfather's axe paradox where, you know, if you replace the head on an axe and then you replace the shaft of the axe, it's the same axe. And it, so it, it's, it's that. And then it's sort of framed around him trying to kill this zombie over the course of, you know, first he kills the zombie, then he has to kill him again. And the axe keeps breaking and that's how he gets it. And, you know, he's just like, so, you know, the, the, the zombie bursts in saying, you know, that's the axe that slayed me. And Dave like sort of looks at his axe and the narration says, it's like, is he right? And then in the cut on Netflix, it just cuts to the, uh, to the, you know, the, uh, what do you call it? Um, the title shot, just the, uh, which is, you know, just like this, you know, it's a title shot. John dies at the end. In the movie that I saw, the theatrical cut, it says, you know, you know, he says, is he right? And then he looks at the axe. And then the next line is, the answer to this will blow your mind or something like that. And then that, that line is well, missing. No, I, I, really I think uh, that that's at the start of that sequence or earlier in that sequence in the version that I just watched last night. Yeah, I think it's like, yeah, solving the following riddle, blah, 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 blow your mind. Uh, I, yeah, so I think I think it's just it's the other way around. I don't know if you're uh, if if you saw a different cut or if you just blinked at that rewatching it here and and so rearranged it or whatever. But uh, but you yeah, know it, it does that. It, it just it sort of sets it up. It says like okay, you know the solving falling riddle will you know if you can if you can solve this then you know it you know blind, mind blowing you know secrets yeah. of the universe whatever. Um, I want to I want to talk about that actually a little bit because that sort of ties in my grand thesis here. Uh, is that Coscarelli has only ever tried to make one movie. And it, it, it works, it, it helps my thesis here that I've never seen anything else Coscarelli's made besides Phantasm and this. So let's ignore anything <laughs> that contradicts this. Taking these two films, Coscarelli's only ever tried to make one movie, but he replaced all the pieces. And so at that point, is it still the same film? Because if you take yeah. everything in Phantasm and replace it with mm-hmm. a different piece that's not quite the same, but it's still doing some of the same job, and then you get a, a film made of all these different pieces, is, is it still the Phantasm? That's, that's, uh, that's, that's the big, big thought. Speaking of big thoughts, there, <laughs> that, that opening scene... <laughs> With, you know, like the grandfather's act thing is nice, but then there's all of these like little philosophical asides, which by like the 12th one gets really fucking tedious. Did you? Yeah. Yeah. No, there's a lot of, 
And, and, and actually, uh, on that front and going back to the riddle, do you feel that there was some absolutely overarching, uh, clear intended meaning of that you know, broaching that paradox as a framing device for the film. No, no, I don't think so. It because felt every other time too. he does it, it's 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 just like a detached sort of. Oh, hey, what about this clever thing? You know, they get into uh, when he's in the car with Roger North. Like Roger North, like brings up the the Butter Meinhof uh, effect as if it's you know some sort of deep philosophical thing. Um, oh, the Butter Meinhof effect, which people really don't like it being phrased <laughs> as that because they were a terrorist cell. But uh, basically, it's. If you hear a phrase that you've never heard before uh, or a word that you've never heard before, um, the next time you notice it will be very, very quickly thereafter. And, you know, I don't know if it's a... Uh, or to, you to, know, to put it another like, way, uh, mm-hmm. when you become aware of a phrase, you will become sort of uh, biased in your awareness of future occurrences of it. So it's not so much right. that like the first time you hear Bader-Meinhof or Bader-Meinhof uh, and then you hear it again. That's literally the first two times you heard it. It's just yeah. you noticed it for the first time, and then you you're more aware that you're hearing it yeah. soon thereafter. So you probably had even heard you know someone walking by and said Bader Meinhof you know previously in your life, but you never fixated on it. So you, the first time you hear it is the the first time for and yeah, so it becomes this touch point where you have this sort of confirmation bias. I feel like maybe like I I assume that that stuff is in the book, and I feel like maybe Coscarelli is almost entirely sure a lot of people that are going to be watching this are going to be very high <laughs> and if you are very high then yeah oh my god awesome it's like oh dude but if you're sober it's a little it gets a little tedious um and you know what i'm actually at this point now even struggling to remember oh yeah it's the other one is uh when um when uh i think john and dave are talking uh oh yeah it's in the uh the, the bratwurst scene where he's just like first he like you know picks up his phone and he's talking to uh john through on the phone which johnny's been talking to and then he realizes the phone is broken and then john's like get a bratwurst and he's like i'm talking through the bratwurst but it's not really through the bratwurst and he's just like where are you are you in heaven and he's just like you know where's the uh where where's the radio station when you're not listening to it and it's it's you know just stuff like that over and over again um and even they even actually go back to that specific yeah, one. Yeah, ra- radio was, becomes a recurring philosophical yeah. uh, <laughs> MacGuffin. Yeah, it's um. Now I'm trying to. Th- I'm just trying to think of uh, any other examples of it. I mean, there's there's so many. See, little things like that. I did sort of like. I, I just sort of uh, shrugged at. Uh, to the point where I don't think I even really made a note of him because yeah, it is a recurring thing. There's 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 a few different recurring things in this film. Like there's that sort of like like, like philosophical woe man uh, one offs and whatnot throughout. Um, there's a, there's a lot of dick jokes in this movie actually. Yes, a lot there of are dick jokes. A lot of dick jokes. Varied varied dick jokes even. You know, it's not even just like some guy who loves saying dick. It's like dicks show up in a number of different uh, ways. Yeah, I mean, like, what, 10, 11 minutes into the movie? An oh, the, actual dick shows up, the doorknob. <laughs> the dick doorknob. It was, I mean, it's, it's so dumb, but it's also funny, because yeah, you the, don't the, see the that much. The joke being that they're, uh, they're, you know, they're in this basement, and the, the, this specter is causing all sorts of trouble, and John runs to get out of there, and he reaches for the doorknob to the basement, and it turns into a dick, just like a big dick with balls. And, like, he immediately pulls his hand away, and he turns to, he turns to Dave and says, that door cannot be opened. <laughs> Which is like, I, it, I'm, almost, I'm almost disappointed 
uh, I shouldn't say almost, a part of me is in fact disappointed that that's how they nailed that. Because I think if it had just turned into a dick and obviously no longer been a doorknob and he just sort of flinched from it, partly because it was weird and partly because, oh, he doesn't want to grab a dick, uh, it would have been fine to just like let that lie and have him be like, what the fuck? And then like, okay, do something else instead. But the the line delivery just made it a, we really need to establish that this guy doesn't want to touch a penis. And it's like, "Eh," but the scene really isn't about whether or not he's freaked out by touching a penis. It's uh, so, and also, yeah, it's sort of out of character because at no point does he not come off as the kind of kid. He doesn't come off as the kind of character who would mind touching a penis. Yeah. He, so it's, you it's, know, it's, it's 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 sort of a yeah. Yeah. But it, 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 was, it was pretty funny. Yeah. Um, oh, Clancy Brown is in this. I just want to mention that I fucking love Clancy Brown. I do too. Is, um, if you don't know who Clancy Brown is, he was Kurgan and Highlander. He was uh, Drill Sergeant Zim in uh, Starship Troopers. He was uh, the preacher in Carnival. He voiced Lex Luthor on Justice League. He was the mechanic uh, on uh, Earth 2, because everybody watched Earth 2 back in the day, right? Yeah. Oh, I yeah. remember that show. Yeah. I get that show confused with Earth 1999. Space 1999. With yeah. Martin Landau, I think that was, and... You know what's really weird? This movie actually has two people who voiced Lex Luthor on two different animated incarnations of Lex Luthor. There's Clancy Brown, who voiced him on Justice League and Justice League Unlimited. And then there's, oh, what is his name? I think it's Kevin Michael Richardson. Yeah, Kevin Michael Richardson, who voiced Korok. Well, yeah, and, voiced, and has uh, Lex voiced Luthor. everything ever. Yeah, uh, yeah, he is. If you have ever seen, like... He doesn't just voice black guys, but if you have ever seen a black guy in a cartoon, chances are it's Kevin Michael Richardson, um, which is, I think, pretty cool. He, uh, I don't remember if he voiced Black Manta in uh, Justice League, but I th- that was a really nice touch. If you've never watched Justice League uh, Unlimited, uh, it's a really good show. But that was the show where they decided to make Black Manta black, even though he never removes his helmet or anything, but he's clearly voiced by a black guy. And I thought that was a really nice touch. Nice. And I think he voices Black Manta on a different show. But yeah, Kevin Michael Richardson is is a, like a storied voice actor. I want someone to make a Justice League LLC. Just, you know, really scale it down. Just <laughs> it's like It's like two guys with a food cart, you know, and, and every once in a while they'll punch someone. And, uh, well, I mean, it's a food yeah. cart. You have to. Um, uh, oh, did you notice that uh, actually Clancy Brown as Marconi voices his own voiceovers in his commercials? I I, uh, I did not notice that. Yeah. And he's also, he has an accent and he's got a Russian accent, which makes no sense because he's supposed <laughs> to be Italian. Yeah. I, I don't know what happened there. Maybe Clancy Brown's like, fuck it. This is what I'm doing. And yeah. Coscarelli's like, I like your moxie, kid. Maybe it's and, the uh, only accent he knows how to do because in Carnival, he also played a character who was Russian. Um, maybe that's what happens when he doesn't use an accent. Uh, His actual name is like Clancy Brownski. And he's, uh, <laughs> he, he's, he's uh, like fifth generation Muscovite. Um, <laughs> That'd be awesome. <laughs> Man, Clancy Brown's so cool. He's in uh, Sleepy Hollow, which is a wonderful show. If you're listening to this and haven't watched it, um, it's done by two guys, the two guys that did Fringe that aren't J.J. Abrams. And it, it's very good, and Clancy Brown is occasionally recurring on it. Nice. I, 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 uh, that's on my vague to try and watch at some point list. Although, again, like I, don't, I don't watch TV till it comes out on Netflix, so it's, it's got to like, you know, get picked yeah, up by sure. them sometime a season or two after... Uh, it gets going. Yeah. Netflix gets a uh, Fox stuff pretty quickly. Um, like they usually get it about a year after it airs. So 
It'll be on. I, I, I'm more than sure it'll be on Netflix pretty soon. Okay, I want to. I want to mention a couple notes. Uh, we were talking about Arnie, the the journalist who's secretly mm-hmm. a dead black guy, but doesn't know that, and, and he thinks he's Paul Giamatti. Uh, there are a couple little things early on that uh, I, I mentioned, like the notes the second time when you're sort of listening, that are sort of funny characterization bits. Mm-hmm. One of them is like one of the first things he says to uh, Dave uh, is, you know, hey, David Wong is funny. You don't look Asian. Uh, which this is this is the ghost of the black guy who thinks he's a mm-hmm. white guy telling the white guy that he doesn't look Asian based on mm-hmm. yeah, it's, it's, it's a subtle little thing, but I, I thought that yeah. was nice. But there's also a, a kind of clever bit of misleading where uh, Dave's been telling about some of this shit going on, and 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 mm-hmm. Arnie says, you know, wow, I I thought my mom was bad uh, because she wouldn't let me watch Space Ghost. Now that's <laughs> that's actually really great because you think Space Ghost, uh, it's kind of hard to get a good read on Paul Giamatti's character, but you know, whatever. He's a schlubby guy. It's yeah. a little bit weird because you're thinking, but because you think Space Ghost, you probably think, you know, Space Ghost, Coast to Coast, uh, or uh, Cartoon Planet, which uh, yeah. those were uh, started airing in what? The the late 80s, was it? I don't remember. Well, wait, no. Um, but 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 then there's the original Space Ghost cartoon. Yeah, the 60s one. And so, the, yeah, that's the thing. So, so the original actual Space Ghost cartoon by Alex Toth was like uh, mid-late 60s. Uh, but it's really been eclipsed in terms of uh, pop culture awareness, especially, I think, for the target demographic of this film yeah. by the later uh, satirical, you know, retakes on it for uh, for Adult Swim. Uh so, so three dates Adult Swim. Well, yeah, yeah. Adult yeah. Swim has sort of become the home of it, but yeah, uh, it was like '94. Uh, apparently, Space Ghost Coast to Coast started broadcasting on Cartoon Network. Um, so yeah, so it's 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 really kind of clever because it's a little disorienting that he'd be like, "Oh, my mom wouldn't let me watch Space Ghost." She's like, "Your mom wouldn't let you watch Space Ghost? How old were you when Space Ghost started airing? I mean, you must have been in your 20s or 30s. I mean, that's fucking ridiculous, yeah, man. Exactly. It, it makes sense either way. Yeah, and then yeah, all of a, yeah. well, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense if he's actually not a 50-year-old dude. And that's the Well, no, no, but it, it makes sense if if um Dave's mom didn't let him watch Space Ghost Coast to Coast. So, well, but it, mom, it wasn't it wasn't it was is Arnie saying that, you know, the worst thing he had to deal with yeah. with his mom was that, you know, right. versus Dave had to deal with his mom being an insane cannibal psycho, whatever. Right. So anyway, yeah, yeah I, I thought that was, I thought it was sort of interesting. Cause I think um, I'm going to say Arnie was about 50 because, yeah. uh, he mentions the, the riot thing covering it fresh out of journalism school is 1984, right. which would make yeah. him probably 22 ish in 84, yes. which would make, yeah, 60, 62, yep. uh, he would have been born. There was um there was a really funny sort of just like uh, a, a setup for like a Chekhov's gun sort of thing, and then the immediate payoff where um you know the Dave and uh, Arnie are talking when they just met, and he's just like you know I never knew my dad. For all I know, you could be my dad. And there's just like a moment where you're just like, is this gonna lead up to like a big reveal? And then Dave just point at blank asks him, "Are you my dad?" <laughs> and Arnie's <laughs> like, "No." <laughs> <laughs> I thought that was uh, that was that was pretty great of them, and works again as a as a good joke for uh, the uh, obvious self awareness Mm -hmm. on the part of Arnie. That uh, oh, um, did Arnie never look at? I I mean, why would you look at your hands? But 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 Arnie's taken a lot of notes. Yeah, in the film, and like he never once blinks at the fact that his own hand is weirdly white 
but I don't think we ever established whether he can see himself. Uh, yeah, like we, he yeah. never, I guess he never looks in a mirror. That, that was one thing that I was wondering if I'd forgotten from the first one is if they resolved it partly by having him look in a mirror. And he sort of implicitly yeah. maybe does when he's sitting in his car freaking out because, yeah, I mean, you got your, your, your rear view and your side mirrors there and I guess you wouldn't see yourself. Well, I thought he was just freaking out because he saw his own dead body in the trunk. Well, I mean that that would I, that would sufficiently. Or maybe that, that yeah, at that but, point it might be the thing that triggers him to actually see his like actual like his his reflection as Dave made him. Yeah. Because I mean, there, there, there's there's another character uh, in this movie who appears differently to different people. Um, what, what is her name? Uh, Shelley. Oh, something like that. Yeah. Yeah, Shelley, who to to John, I mean to uh, yeah, to John, she appears as like a girl he found himself really attracted to, who was very uh, you know blonde and tall and top heavy, and um, to Dave, this was actually really clever. She appears looking a lot like Amy, who becomes yeah. his girlfriend. Yeah, and I thought that was a that was a pretty clever thing. That was one of those you know like notice on the rewatch things where they both to the, both of them it appears as somebody they're attracted to, um, but but with Dave, it's actually a specific other character. Um, oh, the, um, so speaking of that scene, so the, the movie just like begins with like a, uh, like a almost like brief episode in their career is like paranormal. Uh, I mean, they're sort of like Ghostbusters cross. I mean, it's, I'm just trying to figure out that they're, they're like paranormal ghost hunters, but they're, 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 they're sort of blunt about it like you know they just carry weapons and they just get rid of them it's kind of like in supernatural yeah, but with say, even less a, finesse than that yeah it's um, more like they're they are now thoroughly aware that shit is going down in the world and so okay fine they'll uh yeah. they'll just and there, there's 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 a certain you know there's um the scene where the very first scene where Dave encounters somebody, the, the effects of the soy sauce which was when he meets Robert Marley the Jamaican guy <laughs> um and uh so and so the basically, you know, the the Robert is doing like this fake, like uh, David Blaine sort of levitation thing and freaking people out. And um, Dave is, you know, being like the skeptic guy, being like, oh, it's the Balducci levitation, whatever. And then, um, you know, Robert pulls out like the soy sauce stuff. It was just like, you know, you want me to tell you your dreams, um, and then he does, which is a trick that then Dave uses on Arnie, which I thought was pretty clever. You know, you tell him his, you told him his dreams, yeah. Um, but there's another thing where, you know, Robert gets like really, you know, deep into it, like actively trying to freak Dave out. It's like, you want me to tell you the name of your soulmate or how she'll die or uh, when the first bomb, you know, when the first nuclear bomb will hit American soil um, and in what city. And it's sort of implied that both now both John and Dave have access to that information as well, which um, so it's I mean, I, I think that would sort of explain that there's a certain sense of like fatalism about them where they just. Where like after all of that shit goes down, the they sort of don't care anymore in a sense. Um, where you know they 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 do their ghost hunting thing, but they're no longer freaked out or weirded out by anything. And I think it's because of like that sort of knowledge that the soy sauce gave that it also gave Robert, who was also equally because Dave like he you know he confirms it's like it's like oh yeah you know if I had a you know, if I had like you know psychic powers and was able to foretell everything that could ever happen, I'd use it to scam parties at uh, beers at parties, and then they just use it to what like hunt individual ghosts. Kinda, um, yeah, yeah. Well, and and I don't know. I don't get the impression that like 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 again the, the casualness of their sort of ghost hunting. I, I feel like I get the impression they're not even ghost hunters. They're more like guys who won't abide ghosts. 
right? right. Like, like on Supernatural, Sam and Dean, that's that's the family job. That's what they, at least, you know, up through the first couple seasons that I've seen, you know, consistently, it's just like, we were wronged by a, a demon years ago when it killed our mom. And so forever we will go, you know, hunting these things in a very active sense. That's what they do. You know, the pilot even sets up the the... The fact that Wait, Sam, how far have into it? How, how far into it have you seen? Because I mean, that's sort of right, but uh, <laughs> I, I'm like two seasons in. I haven't finished season two. Okay. I don't know if I ever will because it's. I, I it gets better. It gets. I mean, I seasons one and two and maybe even three are sort of. Eh, but starting with season four, it gets really good. Maybe maybe we'll try. So I mean, ahead. I, I just skip ahead to season four. You're not going to miss much. Anything yeah. that you need to yeah. know, there'll be a flashback. Yeah, they 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 certainly aren't shy about the previously on stuff. Uh, I feel like I've seen the first season in its entirety uh, just through the uh, flashbacks at the beginning of the first and second season episodes. So, uh, so yeah, maybe we'll, maybe we'll try jumping ahead, but anyway, yeah. Elizabeth's Tumblr. Yes, exactly. Uh, but in any case, the, the, the point being that they are at least at the start of that very much yeah. like, like, like pro- professional vigilante ghost hunters. They actively hunt. And I got the impression uh, as far as these guys go, that they're more mm-hmm. like, opportunist uh you know anti ghost activists in the sense that like if it turns up they trip across something then they'll fucking you know deal with it and that actually sets up a really good parallel to marconi who's you know he's he's presented as like almost as if he's like a fraud um and you know he's just like you know this big showman you know like he's got engagements all over the world he's got a cult following and he's presented as like you know this big guy and then it turns out he's actually like an incredibly powerful you know um whatever the hell it is he is like mage or something and that's like sort of in contrast to them where you know while they're you know like on the street level you know taking care of real business and he's like the big sellout it's actually the opposite where the stuff they're doing is barely consequential and the stuff that he's doing is actually important because he's you know actually getting this real message of magic and walking the right path out to all of these people even though he's such a big showboat about it yeah so i thought that was uh that was sort of like an inversion of the uh the, the regular that, thing yeah he would turn yeah. out to be some big bullshitty fraud that our scrappy heroes yeah. show up or whatever uh yeah um i, I had something else i was gonna say there and I, I have no idea now it's it's just it's it's run away um, well, in that case, can you how how is it that John knows that Marconi isn't a fraud off the bat? Because he knows that Marconi isn't a fraud off the bat. Because there's a point where I think they just meet him. Because the movie jumps around in time, and there's a point at which they're both aware that he's you know powerful. But there's a point where Dave doesn't know, but John does. When is I'm the moment sure that we see why. that? Because I'm trying to remember where um, they first encounter him. I think they first encounter him uh, when they go into the cave, when they walk through the door and into the cave. Um, oh, right, and he's and he's there. And him and Roger North are there, and then there's also that big black portal, which I think is made of... It, is it implied that it's made of soy sauce? I, it wasn't made clear. It could be, because, I mean, yeah, how many different glistening really... black substances are you going to have in a given... Yeah, uh, thing. But at the same time, it seems like if it was made of soy sauce, you'd get super high going through it, and that didn't seem to happen so much. 
Yeah, but there's the yeah, but the yeah, it's during that scene where they meet Roger North again, and Roger North's like, "Oh, there's so many questions, but I can't really, you know, reveal anything." And then he brings out Marconi, and Dave's like, "Oh, it's just this schmuck from TV." And John's got like this big like grin, like the "Oh, thank God, like we're saved" grin his face. He's like, "Oh, don't be so hasty, Dave. Marconi knows what he's talking about." And I'm not sure how he would know that. Well, I I feel like that's one of the many things that falls into the well. Let's just assume that it's something that John got up to while he was tripping through time, because like there's. Oh, that's- yeah, John I mean, is so like, completely unreliable as a character in terms of what he should and should not know from our perspective. And they use it to, you know, good or funny effect a few times in the film, but mm-hmm. it also just feels like it's hanging out there constantly. Like we cannot assume anything about what John knows because the film finds it convenient for John to know a bunch of things that we don't know he knows, uh, which. Uh, yeah, yeah I mean, he gets unstuck in time. and Yeah. And, and, and so it's kind of like, okay, but, but the film doesn't play that up super directly and so it's one of the things that I find a little bit sort of I'm kind of eh about the execution yeah, of the film is like there's not I realize if you want an unreliable narrator or a plot twist with temporal mechanics those are both totally fine things to use but it kind of feels like at a certain point once it just becomes oh yeah and then John knew about that for some reason because of time travel you know you can kind of get away with it with Doctor Who because because yeah. you know Matt Smith and David Tennant are you know just so super darn charming and it's mm-hmm. the the character is essentially supposed to be a superhero, but as a one off character in a film who's just kind of a guy who got into some weird stuff, you kind of want a little it, it to be more grounded at least. When you pull right. it off, you want to make it clear that it's being pulled off, and not just leave the viewer to say, "Oh well, I guess he must have learned about that sometime." Especially because at that point they had re like at that point John's character had come out of being unstuck in time and just became you know just one of the crew again yeah. and was using like his you know it was using his you know powers or you know prescience a lot less than before and then him for him just to pull it out like that I thought that was a little uh, you know, I will I will make an argument here that occurs to me as a slightly more straight line mm-hmm. explanation for this so John we're saying he was unstuck in time for a while he was also for a while uh, out of his body. Um, and right. somehow or other, uh, his his spirit or his spark may have been inhabiting the dog Barkley for a while, or maybe oh, that's right. or maybe Barkley just gave him a magical shock. But the implication to me, watching it, like the the easy read on this is uh, John's catatonic, and then Barkley finally goes up to John and throws sort of his finger, and there's a spark, and John mm-hmm. convulses, and all of a sudden he's back in his body, like he's there instead of like oh, that's wandering right. and- comatose. And so, Dave mentions that Barkley was in communication with Roger North and Marconi. Yeah. So, so, yeah. so at, at that point, uh, it feels like, yeah, we've got a we, we, we've got a situation where maybe via the dog, John knows that Marconi's legit because the dog and John were sort of the same person for a while, and Marconi was talking to the dog, and right. uh, and the dog saves the day. Of course, uh, is part of the. The thing is, the dog was actually the hero on this secret mission to save the world from this Karak dimension. Yeah, and uh, and and Marconi even it, it was actually a very like sort of Futurama thing where you know where you expect your heroes to be heroes because they're like super competent and capable and stuff. And in 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 this case, that's not really the case because when they go into the parallel universe where they're like worshipped as uh, you know they're where they're worshipped as like saviors, it, it it's it's not because they're like super capable of anything. And when they're chosen to be the heroes, it's because they needed somebody who um you know who the 
who the the locals would find you know not a threat and was able to escort the dog and it just reminds me of a uh, Futurama where um Fry has to save the world uh the Nimblonians you know get him to save the world and it's just like you know um it's like you know you were the chosen one he's just like is it because i'm so smart they're like oh god no it's because you (laughs) lack the alpha brainwave because you're your own grandfather um so i thought that would that was kind of neat that you know again it's like they're not heroes because they're you know heroes they're heroes because they're 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 they they fit this particular slot because of their failings they were available they were the useful idiots uh um i just want oh i just want to bring up a couple of other uh parallels to phantasm one is a really quick one, which was the, uh, when, um, when Dave is hanging around John's house, when John is tripping, and he finds that gun, he tucks it into like his waistband the exact same way that, uh, that everybody did in Phantasm, basically, that like incredibly insecure way of carrying a gun. Yep, let's um, just tuck this in the back of my yeah. pants. Uh, and, uh, no, 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 uh, no training uh, no. speech this time, though. No, no gun safety. It's just... Uh, but Dave does know how to use a gun and quickly and well when he threatens Roger North with it. Yep. And he quotes, um, what is, is it New Jack City that he quotes? I want to shoot you so bad my dick's hard. I think it's New Jack City. <laughs> I did not know the quote. Um, and then there was another scene where, remember how when we were doing the Phantasm thing, and as you, faithful listener, of course remember, I mentioned that there was that musical interlude in Phantasm where she's like, well, this is the kind of bullshit that they used as musical interludes for people in a band before punk rock was a thing. And in this one, we had sort of like a uh, hardcore slash punk rock musical interlude, which was leagues better than the one in Phantasm. Yes, yes. One of the main characters, once again, gets to perform music within the narrative. So uh... Yeah, John is in a band called Three Arm Salad and they do their hit song Camel Holocaust um, which sounds like Cannibal Holocaust which is the name of a horror movie I think it's even a trauma horror movie maybe Um, sounds plausible Cannibal Holocaust is no it's an Italian it's an Italian uh, horror movie which is uh, just a different thing but very close to trauma in the sort of gore sense but yeah um then the musical interlude in this is actually it, it's it's pretty good. It's it's not. I did not fast forward through it. Um, well, it's, and, it's and, just and, like a fun little punk song, and it helps to some extent that they actually had the good sense to not like be okay now. Viewers sit and watch this entire performance. I mean, they they did it nicely of like doing it and yeah, sort of establishing it, it, it and then and it. then they yeah used it as background music for the the, the remainder of that whole scene, which was I thought uh, sort of smart and effective way of. Yeah being less dumb about the whole thing. <laughs> there was no milkman in this film, and that no I'm kind of bothered by, but uh, but what do you do? Um, yeah. I want to... So, so there, there, was, there, was a, there was a line that really annoyed me in the first film because it, it seemed like uh, it was... And this is like me giving the narrator too much credit at the time, but one of the things Dave thinks to himself as he's telling the story to Arnie, uh, he thinks to himself something along the lines of telling the story now, I'm tempted to say something like, who would have thought my friend John would help bring about the end of the world? Mm-hmm. Uh, and it really annoyed me that the world did not subsequently end in the film uh, at the end. And now, like, a close reading treating Dave as an unreliable narrator, mm-hmm. it's not so bad because I'm reading it as, like, telling the story now, I'm tempted to say something bullshitty, like, who would have thought mm-hmm. my friend John would help bring about the end of the world? 
you know, whereas the world did not actually end. And so I won't say that because, you know, despite the temptation, it would be an incorrect thing to say. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I mean, keep, Keep in mind that the story, which is told in the first person as a framing device, is called John Dies at the End. And then John doesn't does die at the end. Yeah, and I... I... <sighs> and they did a really... I have to say, like from a filmmaking perspective, they did a really fucking good job with that because the last scene is, again, like a vignette. It's nothing to do with the main plot, and it's interspersed with the credits. So there's like a bit of scene, black screen credits, a bit of scene, black screen credits. And the first time I saw this, I had no idea whether or not John would actually yeah. die at the end. Which I, I appreciate and, the playfulness of yeah. it. But at the same time, it's like, I don't know. Yeah. And it's I mean, the second, uh, the, the second book is called This Book is Full of Spiders. So, <laughs> <sighs> Yeah, I, I'm, I guess I'm still sorting out my feeling about the title. Like, I, I, I'm not trying to say anything as ridiculous as you can't lie in the title of your film, because that's like, you know, just a weird specific extension of you can't have an unreliable narrator. But at the same time, I kind of I wish there was something more satisfying to the apparent incorrectness of the title than just John dies in the not middle. True. Yeah, he does die. He dies somewhere in the, the, the second act at the police station. They announce that he's dead very plainly. And, and then we find out that he's not really dead. He's just sort of weirdly comatose and out of his body. And then he comes back into it, I guess. But Oh, um, speaking of the police station scene, another parallel to Phantasm is a character fighting with an inanimate object that isn't actually fighting back, but they have to pretend that it is. When um, Dave rips the arm off of the, uh, the cop that isn't actually a cop. <laughs> <laughs> and you know it wraps itself around his neck, and he's got to fight with it. And yeah, I think that that, that was like the uh, the the scene with the bag and the uh, the insect thingy um, yep. in uh, in in Phantasm. Yep, real uh, parallel in the physical comedy there. Yeah. It's also the scene that has the bat mustache, which I I really yeah. enjoyed. that was that was one of the better just straight up. That's weird, and I did not see that coming. Things in the film was the the ghost cop who's not really a cop who's attacking Dave. Yeah. his his mustache starts flipping and, and tears itself off and flies around the room and then tries to attach itself to, to Dave's And it doesn't face. tear itself off like just like a fake mustache. It leaves like a scar of missing skin on his face, which I thought was like a nice touch. Yeah. And then, yeah, it flies around like a moth and then it tries to attach itself to John as... Dave. I mean, to Dave as Dave's mustache. And you don't know why and you don't know what's happening, but they did a really good job of communicating the fact that it would be bad if that happens. <laughs> it's, it's terrifying regardless. I mean, um, you wouldn't want to, uh, uh, you know... You wouldn't want an actual bat attaching itself to your face either, you know. Right. And this is just sort of um, weirder than that, so. And you know what? That was a CGI shot. There was, this movie is clearly, they, they didn't have a lot of budget for this. And I'm really glad that they went with practical effects for most of the effects. Because I, the CGI in this was not great, but the practical effects were wonderful. Yeah. Um, the the uh, the the brain spidery things. Were the, was that CGI or was that practical? I want to I want to say it was a mix. I feel like some of the stuff like on the ceiling uh, mm-hmm. skittering was probably CGI. But yeah, I didn't get a real close look at it, and it didn't strike me as super fake yeah. uh, or anything. Because um, that that thing that's in the fish tank in uh, Robert Marley's apartment that's connected to the TV that can tell the future. Yeah. That you know I think that's the brain of one of those spider things. Um, and that was definitely a practical. Yeah, yeah, that, yeah. That was very much uh, an actual yeah. 
gross thing. And then there was the, uh, the meat monster. There's uh, one of the first scenes of this movie with the one where with Shelly, where, you know, they uh, basically the scene is that, you know, this is like the first scene where we're introduced to them as actual, like, you know, paranormal investigators. And there's this girl, the one that they see as two different girls. She's like, you know, my boyfriend's been hitting me. And it's like, done. He's been dead for two months. So they go down to the basement and they realize they've been seeing two different versions. And she's suddenly sitting there on the stairs. And then, um, the way uh, a friend of mine actually read the book, and he says the the way that is phrased in the book is that she explodes into snakes, um, which you know happens in the movie. That's that that's yep, what happens. That's pretty much what well, occurs. she actually more implodes into snakes in the well, movie. She collapses into snakes. Yeah, she loses the structural and, integrity. Right, and then the snakes all crawl under this meat cooler, and then all the meat starts flying out of the cooler and assembles itself into this like giant meat golem. Um, and that assembling scene is done, as far as I can tell, it's done with wires and stop motion. Yeah, it really looked like stop is, motion to me, too. Yeah, which is awesome. And then, and then when that's done, when the monster's walking around, it's a costume. Yeah. It's, it's a guy in a costume. Um, and yeah, I thought that was really, really cool because it's, you know, it's, it, if that was CGI, it would have looked like shit. Probably, yeah. It's just, with the kind of budget this movie had, um, it would have looked awful. Um, I, and I'm, I'm, I'm waiting for CGI, and this has probably already happened, but I, I could see this continuing to happen. People being in love with old school practical effects, but mm-hmm. not having the, the time or the expertise or whatever to do it as a practical effect. And so doing CGI that's designed to look like a practical effect. Because there's... The, 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 Isn't the, that the, what Corpse Bride was? Was it? Uh, what is it? I, I never saw it. Yeah, that was the. Uh, I haven't the seen Tim it either, Burton. but I could have sworn when it was, was coming it like out. CGI I mean, claymation. Yeah, I think so. I'm just. I'm going to look yeah. it up while but, you. But yeah, knock. But, but that that whole idea. I mean, there, the 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 meat assembly scene is is striking to us because we've seen enough practical that's enough stop motion that we looked at it and it just seemed really clearly to be that because of the subtle little bits of the feeling the way it tends to be a little bit uh you know often often a little lower frame rate than than other mm-hmm. forms of animation uh just because it's that much more nudging but also just the slight weird herky-jerkiness it's really hard to do that sort of stop motion effect and have it be perfectly smooth because uh you're doing a lot of nudging and you're you're you're, you're getting within a you know very small distance of a smooth motion but mm-hmm. but yeah it's a very manual thing it's 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 it lends itself to imperfection in the motion uh and you could criticize it as problematic as an effect because you it's not as convincing because it's herky-jerky but at the same time if you're fond of that look uh that's part of its charm there's something about the identifying twitchiness of stop motion so someone then doing cgi but wanting it to look like stop motion would have to come up with a way of sort of noisying up the frame tweening for each uh, frame right. of emotion to to give it that herkiness that you wouldn't otherwise get if you were just doing a smooth uh, sort of motion curve on a computer. So, yeah, I think it was um, the brothers Quay who uh, who uh, are the, they're these stop motion animators who have made some like amazing and just absolutely terrifying things. Uh, referred to it as something like oh oh is it hang on it's liberation of the mistake mm, don't know it um no i mean it's it's i think that's where is it god damn it oh i think it's just somebody uh somebody whose article they wrote on their uh, animation stuff is called the liberation of this uh, liberation of the mistake and yeah if you like stop motion and you like horror and you like to be terrified check out the quay brothers stuff they um actually even did a few music videos i mean there aren't even really music videos it's the music of his name is alive set to 
animation by the Quay Brothers. Um, the, they did. Um, I mean, I did just go to YouTube, look up his name is Alive, and it's the stop motion stuff. Yeah, I was going to say. Uh, I was also going to mention um, Tool. They've they've had a number of uh, videos that. Uh, oh yeah, yeah. Super creepy stop motion to to good effect as well. Yeah, that's right. I, I've never been too fond of their music, but um, their videos have always been amazing. And uh, yeah. Also, I liked the line "fantasy lake situation." It was just a dumb fantasy lake like, situation. Like I was trying to remember phantom phantom limb syndrome. He's like, "Yeah, don't, isn't that called like fantasy lake situation?" Yeah, that was uh, what was that Fred? Yeah, it was Fred. Fred. Yeah, I feel like Fred was set up the whole movie to just be a mercy kill yep. because my god, watching him on screen was painful. <laughs> and I, I'd like to think that was on purpose. Um, and then they mercy kill him, and that was wonderful. Although the uh, although the fact that they reveal to him that he's going to die beforehand was also kind of great. Where um, where it was when John finally gets up out of his like you know coma unstuckness thing, and he's just like, okay, wait, what's been happening? Well, yeah, are we going to uh, the mall, kid? or are we coming from the mall? Oh, we must mall. we must still be going to the mall because Fred's well, still alive. Fred, and he's just like, what? And they just never go back <laughs> to it until it happens. Um, Poor Fred. Yeah. Uh, I wanted the, to. I wanted to say about the meat thing. Actually, uh, uh, sort of the other thing about it is, I couldn't help but think of the reassembly scene in the original Hellraiser. Like you know, it's, yeah. it's it's not the same scene, but you know, still you've got again using practical effects and 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 camera tricks to uh, do the assembly of a human body. But in this case, it's entertainingly enough not a gory human body that we're seeing inside of because the skin's not there. Instead, it's just meat that is what would be inside of a thing's body. I thought it was. Yeah, a- I mean, I, I can't imagine Coscarelli wasn't at least like in the back of his head thinking about the scene from Hellraiser because I mean that's that's I mean I've never seen another scene in a horror movie that was like that exactly like that where something just like rises from the ground and reassembles itself yeah so the the similarity between the two are um yeah pretty pretty significant and i feel it's important to you know talk about hellraiser uh every every episode (laughs) if we can the other thing i wanted to say actually as far as that goes is the detective uh he gives that big speech uh later on the film uh about uh hell and and how his theory is that Mm -hmm. you know hell uh, you know, basically, it, hell's just this place. You know, and he believes in hell. He's an old school Catholic. Mm-hmm. You know, so he believes that hell is a real thing. Uh, and but he's basically lays it out the idea that hell is a thing that can can get into the world. Uh, right. And then it's really essentially just a, a transit between dimensions, which, you know, whether you want to call it hell or not, that's, you know, it fits well with the, the idea of what's actually going on in the film where apparently you can, you know, with enough effort, jump between dimensions. Yeah. But, uh, but it also works really well with the, it. yeah, it, it works well with the old school uh, Hellraiser mythos, what seemed like it was going on in the first couple films, where the idea that, you know, where Pinhead is and and where you go when you party with the Cenobites is not hell in a theological sense so much as that's a label someone might throw on what is otherwise actually just a different dimension, a, a further dimension that normally one cannot inhabit while, you know, living a, a vanilla life on Earth. Uh, Unless you so, tune in there using the box. Exactly. So, you know, it's like there, there there's a, I, I feel like a, a parallel potentially there between these uh, respective Mythoses, mythi, <laughs> mythi, mythi. Sure, that sounds good. Uh, 
uh, but yeah, I, I thought you know it was, it was interesting, sort of. And then if you take the fact that the 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 the, the detective is essentially making this this argument that is somewhat atheological according to Catholic dogma, but defending it in terms of the fact that he is you know sort of like you know an old school Catholic and that believes properly in hell sets up somewhat that. That that resonates well with the overarching conflict in the treatment of the concept of the labyrinth and and quote unquote hell in the yeah. Hellraiser franchise. Oh, so. And then there's um, there is a point where uh, what do you call it um, when Dave mentions what happens when you take the soy sauce and he specifically refers to it as uh, the walls of the maze turn to glass. Ah, I think that's yeah, yeah and that's yeah. yeah. Um. No, that, I mean that's that sort of figures into there with the um... nope lost it yeah no. but the, the labyrinth <laughs> you know the labyrinth and, yeah. and, and and is labyrinth really uh, another dimension to which the Cenobites can take you or is the earthly existence we have just uh, just an actual a room in the the labyrinth in a sense I don't know if we ever broached this but but the the idea that everyone could have their own sort of personal quote unquote hell in the in the labyrinth conception of the Hellraiser mythos, it could suggest that uh, earthly life as we know it is just a very specific, uh, you know, sort of opt-out version of hell. It's just a very specific part of the labyrinth, you know, as opposed to something other than it. So there we go. There we go. I think (laughs) we've, I think we've, uh, (laughs) maybe also, also at one point a dog drives a car in the movie. So that's, yes, (laughs) That was that was wonderful. Uh, just the big rescue is that Dave gets rescued from a burning building by a dog. Uh, but it's Barkley, the super dog. Yep, the life saving. Yeah, there was. A, oh, you know what? In the in the scene where Barkley, well, the way Barkley saves things is that uh, Marconi gives uh, Dave and uh, John a bomb that's got you know a potent hallucinogen and he's just like it won't destroy Korvac but it'll fuck his shit up severely um and then you know they 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 drop the bomb and they're about to escape from like the the Korvac's pit and then the bomb just sort of like and so you know there's like this you know like they're they're rushing to get out of this door that's you know it's got one of those like turny like bank vault style doors to it and you know they're scrambling and trying to get this thing open and then the 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 bomb just like gets to six on the countdown and just goes like and you know stops and then you know just like the action just sort of stops and um you know dave just sort of like smacks john on the shoulder real casually and points at the bomb he's like dude you fucked up the detonation sequence and i thought that was like a really uh really great just like change in tone immediately where they're just like well it's no longer a scramble to get out because we're no longer getting blown up so yep. no need to be all crazy about it and, and that's what that, that saves the day and that's one of those little Coscarelli-ish sort of let's not bother with this at all sort of things is like yeah. when Marconi's showing them how to arm the bomb he just like yeah, you arm it like this and he like clicks a button a few times it doesn't explain it all doesn't tell you how many times doesn't explain why clicking it a few times does it and so you can hardly give John a hard time for fucking up the detonation yeah. sequence when the detonation sequence is just oh yeah and push a button a few times I guess you know <laughs> so it's the whole thing it, it, it's like w- several steps to being able to invent this situation where the dog has to yeah. save the day which is it's a lot of, I guess, I guess where I'm feeling as I digest this more and more is this, there's a lot of like simultaneous, you know, like it and am annoyed at it in this film. Like right. the same things, like I can sort of look at them both ways and be both sort of appreciative and, you know, driven a little bit crazy as someone who likes his, his stories a little bit more tightly constructed usually if they're trying to be clever. So, 
It's weird. Oh, oh. Um, more parallels with Phantasm. Uh, there is a car that blows up, and it's a real car and a real explosion. <laughs> and it blows up. I mean, yeah, it blows up good. With one yeah, shot from a shotgun, it just <laughs> instantly. Yeah. yeah, really good aim with a shotgun. That's, uh, you know. Yep. Uh, and then another thing was that, uh, hang on, there was a car that blows up. Ah, fuck, I forgot what the other thing was. Mm. I'm sure I'll remember it. Uh, the Mall of the Dead. I believe that mm-hmm. mall, uh, my wife was mentioning this, uh, that's a mall that had an appearance in uh, Phantasm, apparently. Ah. Uh, which I, I haven't tracked down the details on what that was, but yeah. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so I think that may have been... Yeah. And Mall of the Dead is a reference to Dawn of the Dead. Yes, yes. Uh, I think that was one of the slightly more obvious ones, but that was, you know, it was appreciated. Because, I mean, it's just like a quick, like, shot of some graffiti on the mall sign. Yeah. Which I think was nice, just like as an establishing shot. Oh, I remember the other thing. Um, so, in, in Phantasm, they, were, they had all of those, like, timing things where things happen in the same scene. And, like, it gives, like, that sort of dream feeling to it. Like, when, um, when uh, what's his name? I forget the character's name. It was Mike and... Uh, Jody? Jody. Was, Jody. was Jody the little one? No. Jody was the big brother? Jody was the big brother. Yeah, so Jody, where Jody pulls up to that bar, and then Mike comes walking in that like exact same shot, and it's clear that some time was supposed to have passed, but I guess you know there's only so long that Coscarelli had access to that camera for. So he's like, fuck it, make it the same scene. You know, that happens here, where you know there's a big commotion, because uh, John dies... Uh, in the police station, detective's just like, I'll be, you know, right back. And then immediately uh, Dave's phone rings because it's John. And it's like that same sort of like really amazing timing. But in this movie, it actually makes sense because it was it was John that that that, you know, set up the commotion in the first place. So he's the one that's actually orchestrating all of this timing from outside of time. Yeah. Yeah. It's not coincidence yeah. so much as it is, you know, yeah. uh, logistics. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I liked, uh, there's a, there's this horrifying, uh, hot dog statue in the mall. Yeah, the uh, hot dog that's eating itself. Yeah, yeah, it's, a hot, well, he's, yeah, he's, yeah. it's just this, like, four foot tall hot dog standing there with a big grin on his face, and he's squeezing ketchup onto his own head, which is very troubling. But yeah. we saw one of those, actually, uh, a couple of years ago at the Skamania County Fair, I think it was. <laughs> uh, first time I'd ever seen one. And yeah, it was just at a hot dog booth. And Jesus Christ, it really is. It's a troubling motherfucker. This has nothing to do with the film, really. I just, I really find that statue troubling and uh, was sort of delighted to see it in the film. There was um, years and years ago, I mean, I'm, I'm, it might have been like as long as 10 years ago on Metafilter, somebody made a post about a blog that just collected um, examples of auto cannibalism in food advertisement, where it was just <laughs> like the food and it was in some way eating itself. Yep. Um, so that, that that reminded me of that. And maybe somebody will be able to find it because uh, I'm not going to bother. I thought the exploding eyeball scene was pretty great when the detective's yeah. like, oh, these high-pitched voices in my head. And they're like, oh, I think there's something. You know, you're thinking it's going to turn yeah. into a, I think there's something wrong with you. But then, like, yeah. within five seconds, all of a sudden he sort of yeah. starts freaking out and his eyeballs just explode out of his head. And- yeah, it's sort, of a, it's, it's sort of like that same, like, are you my dad kind of timing where you're expecting it to, you know, like, pay off in, like, a later scene. But no, the payoff is, like, immediate. And you're like, hey, yeah. all right. Um, there was actually that happened at another point when um, Dave and uh, Dave and John they leave his house and they're like we gotta go somewhere safe and they go to like the uh, the truck stop diner and you know they're talking and Dave's phone rings and he picks it up 
and it's John, and he's just like, hey, um, it's like, hey, you know, it's like, uh, did you did you come go to my house? Because if you haven't yet, don't. It's really dangerous. <laughs> like, no, I'm I'm sitting right here next to you. He's just like, oh, well, then why don't you just talk to me? And then he hangs up. <laughs> And then you see them turn to each other and you think that like Dave's not going to say that was you. And then John just like looks at him with like this shit eating grin. Was that me? That was me, wasn't it? And yeah. I, I thought that was great. And that, that itself is payoff because when he just picks up John before all the weird shit starts, John is just like, I was calling you and calling you and calling you and I couldn't get through. Man, you're going to be getting phone calls from me for the next like eight or nine years. And you think it's just like this one-off line about like, you know, him being high and saying something weird, but then that just happens. Like the phone calls that he made start stretching out in time and he just keeps getting them later and later. Yep. I thought that was, uh, uh, that was, it was pretty it was great. great. I, I, liked the, I liked the Bible bat that uh, John pulls out oh, at some yeah. point. It's got a name. Um, it appeared on one of the movie posters. It's called the Bible Belter. <laughs> yeah, that was that great. That was a nice um, little touch. Well, I, I, yeah, uh, what the, I enjoyed about that was that, um, what do you call it? Uh, yeah, he wrapped it in the Old Testament specifically. Yeah. And then Dave asks why, and then John just gives him an answer to a completely different question. He's just like, I wrapped it in the Old Testament. Dave's like, why? He's just like, well, because we're the only ones who can do this. We've been chosen. <laughs> I, I, I thought that was pretty great. I, I, did, um, I, did not, I did not catch that as a discontinuity. I wonder if I just read the flow of the scene differently. Yeah. Uh, at, one point, at one point, John pulls out some magic 3D glasses to give to Amy so that she can oh, yeah, see the magical see the door. door. And mm-hmm. and totally unexplained. Yeah, like no no effort whatsoever to justify the fact that these things exist or that they work or that yeah. John has them. He just he just has these glasses, and yet uh, it makes total sense. I mean, why wouldn't you be able to see it with magic glasses? Why not? I mean, hey, if, yeah. if it works in They Live, uh, yeah, why not? It's sort here? of um, yeah, it reminded me of They Live, and then it also reminded me of Big Trouble in Little China, where uh, Egg Shen had the six demon bag with like all of those that magic shit in it. And at one point, Jack Burton is just like, Jack Burton's like, what is that magic potion? Yep. What do you do with it? Drink it? Yep. Thought so. Good. And then they just <laughs> never go cover it again. <laughs> um, you know what I didn't? I, I, I like the gear up scene where, um, you know, the John calls Dave with like the reverse code where it's just like, you know, meet me where we bury the dead hooker without the goatee. And remember, tomorrow is when we kill the president. It's like, oh, that's code for show up to my house, uh, you know, real soon. Bring your gear and uh, pick me up some beer. Like the it was like the, uh, the what is it? What, what, is, what is that called? There, there's a name for that kind of thing. Like they use it for like shoplifting in stores with like Mr. Blue, please come to the front register. It means like somebody's shoplifting. Yeah. Um, there's a name for it, like something code that I, I don't remember. But anyway, um, where was yeah? So there was a gear up scene. And I thought that was cool, and they did like that western music every time gear appears, um, like that, that sort of like cowboy music. Yeah, and I, I thought that was that was great. It reminded me of the uh, the ex- uh, the, uh, the what is it the uh, the bat the uh, bong bat scenes in uh, in Cabin in the Woods where there's like that that little fanfare every time the bat comes out. <laughs> yeah. Um, but there was also what I didn't like was that they they had that you know the uh, the propane paintball gun thing that was supposed to be a flamethrower and then they they have like that real badass music as John puts on that like crazy ass you know welding helmet that looks like a skull yeah and then he fires it off but it's just like this little like three foot flame in front of the thing and all it does is set a guy on fire you think it'd be like something more dramatic than that yeah it really um, it felt a little bit uh, underwhelming yeah, the, the whole fight gonna... scene like on Corvax pit 
I mean, Korak's pit was like not great, and also Korak, not not great. It was all CGI, and it was just like a like an amorphous blob with an eyeball and some tentacles. It was, yeah. I was a little disappointed by that. Yeah, well, like you said, it's sort of. I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I felt like the the end set piece there was yeah. a little bit of a thud. Like it just felt like okay, and now let's uh, we're really run out of runtime, yeah. so let's uh, let's just get this Korak defeat scene. Yeah. But the um, the found footage stuff in the well the the in the in the last scene where they like the first they show like the history of like where the the departure point where their world becomes different than our own which is when their like their technology was based on like a combination of technology and biology versus just like pure like electricity stuff and like everything is like part animal and then they start showing like you know like the World War II like the World War II airplane that's got like moth wings and the pig brain computer yeah. Um, and then there was like that Photoshop shot of like, you know, Cyrus Rooney was the guy who invented all this stuff uh, of his funeral. And then you see like the old form of Korak where it's still like, you know, mobile and it's just like Photoshopped into the, like this old like Ken Burns uh, style, you know, black and white photo that they pan across. Um, I, I, I enjoyed that. And you know what it really reminded me of? Did we talk about um, oh, what the hell is that show? Dark Matters with John Noble from uh, from uh, Fringe uh, played uh I feel like he played Walter on Fringe. I feel like it may have come yeah. come up in, in in passing, but I don't think we yeah. really talked. It about was it. it was just this show that they they they, they just sort of used like it was John Noble basically played Walter from Fringe, and he just it was like one of those shows where they talk about like some real life like weird science sort of thing like the uh, the Philadelphia experiment or UFO stuff or cloning or you know that was you know the kind of stuff that you see in like uh, like conspiracy theory websites and, like the weekly world news or something um, and they don't have any kind of budget for that show so what they did was that they made like all of the scenes like there's actual actors in it but they're really hamming it up and all of the scenes are completely CGI but really sparse and like super super stylized so that they just sort of like get away from not having a budget by just like that really just stylizing everything to a really insane degree, which is the same thing that I think that they did with um, with those shots where they're like, you know, we can't make it look great because we don't have that kind of CGI budget. So we're at least going to make it look weird. Yeah. And I think that worked for that stuff, but that didn't really work with Korak because that was just, you know, it, it, it was like a completely different tone to it. That where they tried to make realistic and then it wasn't. It just looked flat. Yeah. Although... Yeah. Um, it was great, which was a first of all one of the best lines. But you know, when they're talking about like everybody who didn't want to, you know, like give their knowledge to Korak, when you finally realize where this world went, like really, really terribly wrong, um, and then you know, like giant spiders come and kill everybody, and you know, you see like a live action shot of like them tossing like people into a pit, and like you know, giant like CGI spiders come out, and then the guy who's telling Dave and John, you know, in the parallel universe, he's telling them this. He's just like, you know, it's like we don't think your brain, your your simple mind are able to process this so we've presented to you another way it's what you call a cartoon and there's like this animated segment of like spiders just tearing apart people uh you know like limb from limb and for animation it's pretty good animation um and i think that was great because they they there was no way they would have been able to make that look good (laughs) with the kind of money they had it's just like fuck it let's just animate it exactly Um, it was it was cute yeah, and then there was, like, the, the, the really, really good line when, like, they're just, like, you know, it's, like, and that's why our world is perfect, because everybody shares what they have with Korak. And then John's, like, you know what? 
I, oh, it's like it's like you know, it's a, in our world, it's considered a great evil to not share your knowledge with Korak. And John's like, you know what? In our world, it's considered a much bigger crime to feed unarmed uh, unarmed people to to giant spiders. We call that arachnicide. <laughs> and it's, it's just like completely like offhand line. And I, I I crack my it cracks me up every time, even though I know it's coming. Well, and, and and yeah, that, that that made us blink when we were watching it because like, but arachnicide—that'd be like if you're killing the spiders, not if you're killing with the spiders. Yeah, I mean, yeah. But that's anyway, true, but but John, also, uh, it's John got so. bestiology and uh, bestiality confused. Yes, in that same scene. Yes. Um, it also just reminded me of the uh, the Simpsons when Bart's trying to call nine one one, and it's one of those phone trees. And it's just like if it's like if you're reporting a crime, press one. Then he just like mashes the keypad with his hand. It's like you have selected regicide. If you know the name of the king or queen who is being murdered, press one. <laughs> that that scene was also one of the Bill and Ted things for me. The the John and Dave as sort of revered figureheads in some place other than their normal context thing. You know, although oh, yeah, in this case yeah. it's sort of sacrificial. Yeah. Rather than as, you know, the saviors of humanity in the future. And then there's Bill another said. dick joke. And then where, another dick um, joke. Yeah, Korak yeah. makes a dick joke about your oh, tiny Cor- wiener. No, there's another one before that, though, when they're looking at the mural of themselves, and John's like, oh, I like the nice touches, and there's like a quick pan to like, uh, in the mural, there's a seat, there's a shot where John's wearing very tight pants, and he's got a very, very clear bulge in them. Yeah, that's right. Um, that was that was pretty great. There was um, I'm trying to think. There was another dick joke. This one I didn't actually catch until I watched the movie with subtitling. The uh, the the place where everybody died was called the One Ball Inn. Yes. <laughs> yeah. And that, oh, here's something I did not understand, and maybe you can explain it to me. Those slugs. That keep slugs. turning up. They yeah. turn up. Uh, they they turn up in the first scene where you know, like during the grandfather's act scene, where that's how he breaks the. Uh, that's how he breaks the axe head is killing one of those slugs. But then when Roger North gets to him, when he appears in the back of his car, he sticks one of down his shirt. And I don't know why. I, I, why does I, that happen? I think the implication was that uh, Roger was a little bit capable of being like a, a slug herder. And so he's like, hey, I'm going to stick this slug down your shirt and you're going to shut up and do what I say because otherwise I'll sick my slug properly upon you. Uh, but yeah, beyond that, I was like, like, that's just me trying to, because yeah, they, they don't go into any more detail on it. It's not made clear why that's what's going on. Maybe the slugs are some sort of. Okay, so actually, this is this is this is a whole thing. Korak, Korak is this uh, terrible creature from this alternate version of our universe. Uh, Korak seems to be trying to be bridging the gap to our universe. So mm-hmm. that he can, you know, consume all of the content of another universe as well. Uh, you know, something like that. You know, it seems to be his sort of M.O. Uh, but I don't know if Korak is supposed to be like the overarching villain of the multiverse. Because like those slugs could all, maybe, maybe they're little Korak larva. You know, and maybe they keep showing up because Korak keeps, you know, trying to, uh, you know, make inroads. Right, um, but it's yes, it's 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 really not made clear. Maybe they're just sort of like dimensional parasites that tend to manifest in general. Maybe, yeah. There's, yeah, it's it's, it's I, I one of those one of those things where it's it's okay if some things aren't clear, but once in a while you gotta you gotta you gotta make, you gotta give us a little bit of context. That's, yeah, that's the thing. I'd really like to know more about some of the world building in this whole thing, and, yeah. and it's just not there. It's a little bit frustrating because it, it feels like 
it's not left dangling in a sort of Lovecraftian horror, oh, it's even more terrifying not to quite know sort of way. It's more just a, no, I get, but where's the other chapter of this story that you're telling? You kind of forgot all this interesting stuff, you know. And again, the film versus book may be yeah. as much as anything what's going on there. But uh, And I mean, it's like even in, a, even in Big Trouble in Little China, like where Jack Burton and the viewer is clearly alienated. Everyone else knows exactly what they're talking about and talks about it as if they know what they're talking about. But in this movie, nobody talks about anything. So you can't even get anything from, uh, from like somebody else's conversation. Cause, yeah. yeah. Also, Roger North, really, I mean... He looks like the platonic form of like a guy in an '80s goth music video. Like he looks like he'd be like hanging out on a couch with Gary Newman or something. He, I, I like the way he looked a lot. Um, that guy's apparently an extremely talented mime. I, uh, this is I. How been, am I not even a little surprised? He, he's been in a bunch of stuff. He, he's been in a bunch of stuff, uh, oftentimes in costume because he's a good guy to get into a, a costume. Huh. He played Abe Sapien huh. in the Hellboy movies. Real? Oh, that, um, okay. Yeah, that's and not not voice, just played right because that was that he was voiced by David Hyde Pierce. Was he? Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, yeah. I remember that was one of those. That, I think that was like the first movie where I ever found out that like the they, the the voice and the the person is a different no wait no never mind that was star wars <laughs> yeah anyway that guy's cool yeah um yeah there was uh i i enjoyed now, okay, roger north i i was i read it as roger north that character being uh basically a, a vassal of karak was it? I thought but he was... I, but I also thought it wasn't super fucking clear if that was the case. Like, I couldn't tell if he was working for Kurok and he was here and that Marconi just suckered him into thinking that Marconi was helping. But that just makes sense. Because yeah, Marconi was totally Marconi showing up the fucking bomb. So, yeah. Yeah, Marconi revealed his plans right in front of him. I mean, there's... I, I, I think that there's, like, two forces in this universe that go beyond Korak, and, like, one side is the side that Marconi and Roger North are on, and the other side are the people who killed Arnie Blonstone. That could be. And, yeah, I think there's, like, this this ex- much more external struggle than is ever revealed, and I think that we're just, like, seeing bits of it, but I think there could have been, they, they, they could have put a little more effort into revealing those bits. Yeah, I, I, I felt like it was, yeah. yeah. Um, there were, yeah, because just trying to think, uh, I also want to say, uh, again with Coscarelli, there is some gratuitous nudity late in the film. So that's, oh yeah, that was, that, that, was that was, that was comforting. Lots and lots and lots. Like there was just a lot of topless women. And what I actually really appreciate about that was that they were all of like very different body types. Yeah. Um, you know, it wasn't, they, they weren't all just like, you know, slim, large breasted women, like slim, young, large breasted women. It was just like, they were young, old, uh, large breast, small breast, slim, not slim. And there was like a couple of guys in the mix as well. And they were also not all like, you know, hunky guys. I think the only one I can remember off the top of my head was, was, you know, big, 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 hairy guy. Yeah. Um, yeah, that was, that was, it was, yeah, I mean, it was gratuitous nudity, but it wasn't, it, it wasn't. It wasn't sexy. It wasn't. I don't think it was supposed to be well, yeah, sexy. And, and, and they're all wearing these grotesque be, uh, masks too. So yeah, it was supposed to be unnerving. And then in the fiction, and it was, and it was like it was supposed to be not unnerving from the point of view of the naked people because it was supposed to comfort them. Yeah, because it was supposed to comfort Dave and John, and which was a nice way I mean, to lay out yeah. a little bit of a sense of just the wrongness of divergent worlds. Yeah. Uh, um. Okay, so I, I wanted to say, 
Then they, they they kill Karak and whatever, and, and then and then we get to the epilogue stuff, and they're playing b-ball, and then uh, a, a glittery silver sphere appears, which again, phantasm. It's kind of hard not to say, oh, was hey. it silver? I thought it was black. Well, it was it was it was it was black silvery soy sauce. I I feel but like it was a sphere. It was a sphere. Yeah, that's it, the it, it was thing. yeah, it was a reflective sphere. So you know that's that's good enough for me to say okay this is a, a highly reflective reflective sphere once again phantasm you know rears its Coscarellian head, um, and actually to, to run with that the, the the earlier column that they go through to 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 go to Korak's place once again someone is traveling between dimensions thanks to a highly reflective uh, column. Like in uh, the, the the pair of columns that framed the portal in in Phantasm, so ah yeah, I, I, don't, I don't know if that was an intentional visual nod either, but I'm going to assume yes for both of these because it makes me happy. And there was a magic door, and there was a magic door to another dimension, probably. There was several <laughs> magic doors to another dimension, and uh, no clear exit to the door because when they go into the door to go into that universe, they fall into the frame from out of frame. Yep. Did you notice that? And yep. there's no like, there's no portal like you know just thing there. or anything. Yeah. yeah. So that, that that was actually a little unclear. Mm-hmm. But but I and I think that's interesting because contrast that with the sphere that they go through. They're playing basketball. They go mm-hmm. through this sphere and they end up in this mm-hmm. other dimension. But the other dimension is clearly the exact same place. Like if they diverged, it was uh, much more recently uh, because it was- it's just a sl- sort of like overgrown. Uh, grass growing through the cracks of the basketball yeah. court, but still the same basketball court. So, which suggests either that sphere portal is working differently than the cylindrical one, or the mall where the cylinder was. I guess it was just a field instead because they never built a mall there. Well, here's the thing, though: the cylindrical portal is in a cave. They go through it. They end up outside, but then they end up back in a cave, and that's and Marconi picks them up back in a cave. Yeah. So it's, yeah, it gets a little hinky. Although I yeah. wonder if that's like one of those things where, uh, have you ever seen the, you've seen the, uh, the Bela Lugosi Dracula movie? Like oh, the I don't original one? I have actually. Well, it, it, for, for some reason, um, his, his mansion in Transylvania and, uh, what is it? Carfax? Is it, it's Carfax. Yeah. Carfax in London. The, 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 uh, the, 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 the estate that he buys yeah. look identical. <laughs> Go figure. Man. It's like, it's almost the same set or something. Uh, but yeah, there was, oh, and then there was like that, that other like wide plane when, uh, John is having like that severe, uh, soy sauce trip during like the 1.78 seconds he has before Appleton walks in the door Yeah, where he, you know, saves his own life by distracting the guy at the munitions factory, which I thought was pretty cool. I, I, I sort of like that, like time. Well, jump, that, was, that was one of the utility few, stuff. yeah, that was one of the few like really explicit bits of temporal yeah, Fiddly because he that. he ends up in that like field where the sky is, and the sky is again different. It's the, the it's different from the normal like our sky because it's sort of like a dark purple, and the sky in the parallel dimensions where Korak is is orange, and is and the sky in that third dimension, I think, is like a light purple. So the sky is different in every dimension. So I assume that's a different dimension. And the girl turns to him, and she's only got one eye. I still I don't know what that what the hell that was about. I don't either, and I. I but but it was an interesting thing. There's a, there's a girl, and she was walking with a shuffling step, which is the same weird shuffling step that the waitress in uh, the restaurant and uh, the woman had. at the end uh, had who falls over, where she like turns to the like the she's the, she turns to them and she like yells something and then just falls on her face. Oh yeah, 
Hmm. So yeah, I, I, I didn't yeah. I didn't end up putting that together. Yeah. I'm not sure what the story yeah. was, but yeah, it was it was a odd, unsettling little moment. Also, what's up with they China food? Is that am I missing a joke there? What? I uh, they China food. Uh, they That's China what the Chinese food. restaurant is called. It's called oh. they China food. I don't know. And it's not like it's not a racist joke, as far as I can tell, because it's not making fun of you know like a stereotypical way that you know Chinese people speak. Um, so I have no idea what, what the hell is that about. Maybe it's just trying to play with the idea that oftentimes there are weirdly agrammatical names for Chinese restaurants without necessarily being super mean spirited about it. I don't know. I mean, it's could be it. I don't Although there was one line that I think was, I, I don't know how this got passed, like quality control or whatever, but he, when uh, Arnie says, you don't look Asian, David, David, uh, Dave replies, I'm not, I was born right here. It's like, well, so are a lot of Asian people. Uh, <laughs> yeah. You well, but then it's not, Dave is not necessarily super enlightened, so I, I don't know. It's hard to yeah, know whether to write true. it as an intentional character note yeah. of him being sort of vaguely, you know, lazily culturally I mean, xenophobic or just like whoever wrote the Yeah, because I mean, there was also all sorts of like ham-handedly handled, uh, like, uh, I'm not gonna say, just inclusion sort of stuff and Phantasm, which was made by Coscarelli when he was, you know, a kid and... You know, it's it's it wasn't it wasn't mean spirited. It was just sort of like you know, yeah, yeah. Um, okay, I, I I have I have two questions I want to ask that both tie into the idea at the end of the film. The first one is they go through that silver sphere playing basketballs during the interstitials during the credits, and they they, they get through there, and a couple of guys show up uh, on jet platforms or whatever to basically say, Hey, it was foretold that you would come and you're going to come save the world and being very flowery and formal. And they're like, uh, yeah, no, uh, to do this, we need to get some stuff. So we're going to go back and get our stuff. And -hmm. it's totally unclear to me whether, and then they, they start walking away and John makes us blah, blah, blah. Because uh, the guy keeps talking and yeah. to to Dave as mm-hmm. they're walking away and, and in slow motion, I have no idea if the intention was for us to think that they were in fact going to go get their stuff and come back and save the universe, but they were also so blasé about this at this point that they didn't want to hear the speech, or if that was like, oh yeah, no, stay right here, we just have to get some stuff, eh? yeah. And then I just- I think it has to be the latter because of the time compression. Because what happened, you know, John jumps in, Dave goes in right after him. John's like, where have you been? I've been in here for two hours, which means that by the time they leave, get stuff and come back, it'll be like hundreds of years later. Yeah. I, there's I there's no way so. they can get stuff and come back. But at the um, same time, if they're saying this portal, are they going to leave it alone if their sort of deal is trying to deal with these problems? Because the portal's got to be a bad sign, presumably. Right. You know, and they don't want shit coming back through there. So yeah, it's... That might be one of those things that they consult with Marconi about because they now have like a direct line to him. Maybe, Yeah. I, I feel like they're, they're, there's an implication that they're going to be getting a lot of future guidance from Marconi. Yeah, like they're sort of joining the joining the company, as yeah. it were. Also, I love the fact that when Marconi rescues them uh, from Korak all the way at the end, uh, and like there's that one guy running towards them with a weapon, and you think Marconi's going to like do some you know magic stuff and get the guy out of the way, and he just shoots him in the face. I just kind of thought he was going to shoot him in the face. <laughs> oh. <laughs> it seemed very consistent to me. I was like, at this point, yes, I, I yeah. This guy's apparently more of a classic sort of fixer character than than he is the uh, magician, right? Um, okay, but my 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 other question, my my big question, to try and to try and find some way to engage with my 
feelings about the title. Uh, is John actually alive? Or is he just another projection of Dave's? Because Dave wouldn't want John to die. John is Dave's bro. Uh, Dave's in this terrifying new world, essentially, you know, where everything is different. And we've established that he's capable of just projecting someone to be totally convincingly alive and solid and, and so on. What, well, if, what if John actually had been dead already at the end and he's just, uh, you know. But at which point would he have died? Because the thing with Arnie is that Arnie doesn't interact with anybody except Dave. And if you notice, he never gets, well, neither of them get served food, but Arnie doesn't even get a plate put in front of him. And a lot of people interact with John. True. You know, uh, he gives Amy the glasses. Uh, he sets that guy on fire. He pulls Dave up from, you know, the pit. So if he did die, at which point would it have been? Yeah, which is fair. Which is fair. He could have died going through that silver sphere. That's a... <laughs> yeah. I'll just call it that. But, um, yeah. Nah, see, I'm just, I'm just scrabbling for something to chew on. I mean, and the, the frustrating thing about the film is that is not a convincing counter-argument. I mean, it's a perfectly reasonable counter-argument to me as someone who is thinking about this stuff on the same wavelength as you in terms of, yes, right. that doesn't make sense. It's, it's, it's a terrible theory. It doesn't follow. But uh, the film is so uh, parsimonious with its actual details about what can and can't happen and what the nature of the powers of the soy sauce and so on are that, uh, I don't know, maybe... Maybe John is dead. Maybe it's just a super projection. And maybe John's just this really, really solid long-term extension of Dave's will and sense of self. And, and uh, it's still plausible. Right. And that's, I guess that's, that's my biggest criticism of the film overall. It's just I feel like there's, there's a lot of stuff there that, like, you know, I want, uh, again, I want to I be able to engage with this filmic universe and this premise on a more detailed level than the film actually allows me to with what it provides uh, but I also think it doesn't it it doesn't ask for that kind of participation. I don't think it expects it. Well, yeah, maybe I'm just like the the, yeah. the overly needy friend. Like it thought it was just inviting me over to a party, yeah. but I thought we were like you know best buds now. And it's like, hey, film, let's hang out some more. Let's 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 you know let's have a sequel, huh? You know, and it's like, oh Jesus, buddy, I just <laughs> you looked lonely. I, I thought I'd blow up a car yeah. for you, you know. <laughs> Well, I think I think that I think that's all of my thoughts. Uh, you got anything else lurking on on this? Uh, let me just go through my notes real quick. Um, I can't read my notes. I thought that uh, just call me shitload was a nice sort of uh, biblical know, casual thing. riff on yeah, I am legion. Instead, just call me shitload. That's a nice little yeah. You know, that's how I found out about the book a very long time ago. Was I was just like looking up the. Uh, the uh, the um the the phrase the the I have Legion phrase like years ago and it was just like oh in the, in a book called John dies at the end and I clicked on it and read about it but I never actually went back to it um and then I you know I think I barely recognized it uh these are my notes for prophecy four <laughs> I mean prophecy three <laughs> that's not gonna help you. Oh, there was the uh, that that line about Franz Kafka that made no sense, and I suspect that's because nobody 
on the set had ever read Franz Kafka. <laughs> they were just like walking through the, uh, were, were they walking through the tunnel to Kor- uh, Korak? And he's just like, you know what I'm thinking? That if Franz Kafka was here right now, he'd shit himself. It's like, yeah, that's exactly it. I'm like, that doesn't make sense. Yeah. Th- this isn't, this isn't the sort of horror that Kafka dealt with. Um, yeah. Um, fucked up the detonation sequence. Marconi shoots a guy. Dog needed an escort. Yeah, that's. I think that's all the uh, the notes I had. All right. Well, we'll we'll have to we'll have to decide uh, what we're doing down the line. We talked about the anthology thing, and I think that'd be maybe fun to do. But next time, we'll of course uh, next fortnight we'll be doing Prophecy four and five. Uh, <laughs> Which I I haven't watched either yet. I'm, uh, I have no idea how I'm going to feel about this. We're going to see Carrie Wurr again. Uh, oh shit! She was she was the journalist, the bad girl journalist in uh, Hellraiser Deader. Um, ah yes, which which makes sense since they shot that at the same time in the same place in Romania apparently as they shot both of these prophecy films, as far as I understand it. Uh, so she'll be there. Doug Bradley will be in one of these apparently. Um, hmm. I, I I don't remember maybe Lance Henriksen as well. I I don't remember. Maybe I'm just assuming he's in terrible films always now. I'm gonna I'm gonna pretend Michael Ironside's in one of these because I just want to see Michael <laughs> Ironside in a movie. That works. I, I'm gonna pretend uh that uh Brian Blessed is as well. So <laughs> so look forward to our <laughs> our next episode where we discover we discuss Brian Blessed's command role in Prophecy Four. Um and yeah. my big crush on Michael Ironside. <laughs> Other than that, I, I guess we're pretty much done. Go, go do the things that we tell you to do every time. If you haven't done them already, go to iTunes and rate us, maybe review us. That helps with this uh, podcast uh, visibility. Uh, check out the We Have Such Films to Show You uh, Facebook page and talk about stuff and post stuff if you want. And we've got the Tumblr as well. You know, just search for the title of this podcast uh, if you didn't get here from there, I guess. Yep. Uh, mm-hmm. I, think that's, I think that's pretty much the thing. Thanks for listening. And, uh, yep. and yeah, we'll be back in a couple of weeks. And um, we do not have anything specific on the slate after Prophecies 4 and 5, so feel free to go onto the Facebook group and give us suggestions for movies you want to see. Um, I know we were talking about doing uh, Evil Dead 1, 2, and the remake. Oh, yeah, yeah. And then I mentioned that to a friend of mine, and he's just like, well, how are you not doing Army of Darkness? And I'm just like, oh, uh, it sort of doesn't yeah, it's, the it's, man it's out. totally different from yeah. the... Yeah. So, um, but yeah, yeah, we uh, we would very much appreciate suggestions uh, for what you guys want to hear us ramble on about. And yeah, I think that's good. I think we're good. Okay. I think I think I think uh, I think you should uh, go uh, enjoy married life. Okay, I will. I it's it's oh it's three fifteen. I'm gonna go eat a thing. Bye everybody. Bye everybody. Bye.